The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 23 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as The House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is me, as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trios tag team partners. To my right is none other than the educator of excellence. Educator, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad. We're at the very end of August, and school supposedly is right around the corner getting ready to uh, hopefully be back in the classroom, uh, modified schedule between classroom and online instruction. Uh, The gem of a pay-per-view we're going to be talking about today. This was a very, very pleasant surprise. I honestly don't ever remember rewatching this besides the first time live back in 98. And uh, absolutely love this show. So looking forward to your guys' take on this. And, uh, the discussion that's going to hopefully commence. Yeah, I mean, this is a show that I didn't remember whatsoever. And then when we were, I, I know we kind of talk offline to kind of get ready. It was like, well, what do we have left? Like, you know, oh, you know, we have the Inferno match. We have this. And this was just one of those pay-per-views was like, it's not that over the edge. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what the what the uh, the overshadowing of this pay-per-view is and the stigma behind the over-the-edge branding. Uh, for but we will get into that during our show and then as always is none other than the mast library kevin hellions kevin how are you oh i am doing well uh like the educator i'm curious what's coming in september but remember kids your local library has lots of stuff for you both online and digitally and like you're saying about this show um you know, we're far enough in the In Your House series that we thought all oh, the surprises were gone. It's kind of like a long-running horror series where you're like, oh, they're just phoning it in at this point. And, and then I don't know where you get Jason X and it revives everything. Yeah, I'm more of a fan of Declan X than Jason X. Oh, good call. Is Declan X the new DX? Oh, you have no idea how much I want him to do like a low-budget DX opening because he's doing low-budget Avengers movies right now. But then I have to teach him that movement, and then out of nowhere, I'm going to get a phone call. Why is he doing this in front of Grandma? You know, Declan X has got two words for you: Pokemon Go. How <laughs> 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 that? I don't know. So, how's his follower count? Still more than you? So we're breaking it down the other day, kind of like DX. Yeah, because my stuff goes back quite a while, like maybe ten years. He doesn't break my like all time, but anything within the last year two years three maybe even since he was born yeah he's knocking my numbers out i like how you had to go back 10 years to find a number just so to suitify just to soothe your own ego (laughs) that beats your son it counts on on youtube it was more pre-kid when i had more free time to do more ridiculous stuff not serious stuff like podcasting and writing my blog (laughs) or yeah the show so when you talk serious stuff we're talking now show stuff 
Um, guys, I, I have a dilemma at home. Um, it's you know my scoundrel. You have a dilemma, right? What's that? You make dilemonade. Oh God! <laughs> oh, all right. Even beyond, even Beyonce is upset at that one. Yeah. Um, it's my scoundrel brother. You're, you're what? My scoundrel of a brother. Oh, I was gonna say I know what an Eskimo brother is. I didn't know what a scoundrel brother was. <sighs> this is why we don't record early in the morning. <laughs> It's because Kevin is just usually by the end of the day he's beaten down. Yeah, <laughs> like he's all emotionally. Ready to go. All right, guys. So here's here's what's going on. So over the years, as you heard when we had the Mangler on the run in, um, you know when you have something that's in your collection, it sometimes gets traded from person to person, bought stuff. Now, Mister McCarthy, I have bought things from you, their educator. Um, what have I bought from you? Uh, when I supposedly was growing up and thought I had to become uh, the mature adult, it was time to get rid of some of my wrestling collection, and uh, I sold you a good chunk of my original Hasbros. What else did you What else did you sell me? Uh, I am trying to figure out what else over time that I've dumped your way. You had a complete collection of this, and I bought them, and one was the pink one. Oh, yes, yes, my infamous 1998 uh, set of WWF Beanie Baby Bears. Now, I bought them from you, correct? You did at that rummage sale. So, my mother is going through the house, cleaning things up, and she's in my old room, which is now her uh, storage for Christmas things, I guess. And uh, she's making, you know, she's going through my totes or the totes that are in my um, closet. And she comes across the Beanie Babies. Nice. Yeah, because, you know, I don't have them displayed. I don't know why. So, <laughs> uh, My brother then says, oh, oh, I remember I bought these from this place and takes them. No. Not a chance. Not a chance. I was at that yard sale, too. Yeah. So. I'm on your side here. I literally said to my mom, I bought them from the educator. And she's like, who's the educator? And then I gave your government name. Ouch. And everything was fine. (laughs) Um, So I said, I bought them from the educator. They are mine. I'm going to discuss this on the podcast. And you guys can listen to find out what the verdict is. So he's just just been a scoundrel. He's the same guy that took the money from uh, Kevin and made my dad hate Kevin for years, thinking he never paid them for a ticket for the wrestling event and he just he, he stole the twenty dollars or thirty dollars whatever it is he's listening right now where's the rest of those hasbros <laughs> he is listening yeah and that was another thing too was you, i bought a million hasbros off you probably 60 of them easily like the, the whole collection almost. yeah the whole, pretty much the whole collection i had up to that point yeah and then when we got them back he gave us like 25 yeah it was crazy because you pulled up with Mangler, coincidentally. Right. You see how it all it all it's all connected in our Marvel like universe that we have over in the show universe. I was very frustrated about that. Yeah, because I remember too when I got those Hasbro's because I bought a bunch of like stuff. Um, because you know I over the years I'm not into figures. Um. Like I said, I, I was thinking about getting the AEW ones. I can't find them anywhere still. Not, <laughs> They're just not, not there. Either. Uh, so I don't even know if I'm going to collect those anymore, but um, not that I ever started. So 
when I wanted to give the Hasbros back to you, educator, and just give them to you right. because I know you would give them a nice place to live. Uh, you know, uh, my brother tends to take the ones that he he keeps. He keeps certain ones and doesn't probably the rare ones he'll keep. And so we're on to your games that, there, uh, Mel. That carded yep. that carded Yokozuna. It's gonna keep yeah. it. He's got those mocks one two three kids. So now autographed. Now, Treats, out of curiosity, did you ever go through a phase where you decided that you needed to get rid of all these things and, quote, grow up? That's a good question. Here's the weird thing. I never, I'm not a big collector of things. Right. But did you ever say, oh, I need to get rid of all this stuff? Like, I had an amazing, amazing WWF, WWE DVD collection. Yeah. Like, I had pay-per-views. Um, you know, the WrestleMania box, all the box sets that came out, WrestleMania, Royal Rumble. And then once the network got announced, I just traded it all in. Cause I was like, well, I don't really need that. So I've never been a huge person that collects things. I mean, that's just kind of my nature. Now I'm kind of getting into it. Like certain things, um, one being part of the retro network has gotten me into going to Goodwill, like every other day. Uh, where I've found some gems. I mean, I got my uh, Batman Forever uh, glass mugs, the the McDonald's giveaway. I got those bad boys. Um, and just certain things. Like I'm like, oh, I remember having that as a kid and stuff. Um, and then, of course, I've been addicted to eBay, as you guys know. So I kind of want to get those wrestling buddies, um, which you still haven't sold me manglers. So uh, <laughs> a little pissed off about that. But, uh, yeah, I've never been a huge um, collector of things. No, okay, because okay. I mean, it's just—it's interesting. You never had like a a grand purge in your life, which you're saying is because you just never had uh, a bunch to start with that needed to be purged. Whereas I was thinking it's because you've never been married. Why are you taking shots early in the morning? <laughs> wow. They don't—they don't listen to us. Brutal. You know, jeez. I'm gonna go cry in the corner. Our wives don't listen to us. <laughs> well, even off the show, they don't listen to you. No. <laughs> Yeah, I, that might be the case, too, but I've never felt the need to grow up. Plus, I, I think a lot of it, too, is upbringing. If you, you guys know my father and his collection of sports memorabilia. That's true. Yeah. So it was kind of encouraged growing up. My father has a saying, you only regret what you don't buy. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and in grand scheme of things, that's so true. Yeah, I it's mean. Almost fear of missing out. And I think that from him. He's Oh, so let me tell you this story about my father really quick before we get into um, Over the Edge. So, of course, my dad is the sportscaster, as you guys know, and his first big event was the 1980 Olympic Games in Lake Placid, the Winter Games. He, um, of course, you know, 1980, I, I got to look the dates up exactly. He got married in 1980, September, so this must have been right, um, when's the Winter Games? That would have been that probably February really, yeah. Yeah, probably yeah so it would have been like nine months before he got sold like he's walking and of course the big thing from that Olympics was the Miracle on Ice the hockey team right uh, you know the US hockey team and he was walking down this you know walking down the street to his Lake Placid and he had a connection with one of the guys and sold him an Olympic hockey um, game used uh, hockey stick. Crazy. I'm not sure the player, you know, don't think it was autographed, just game used. Got it from like an equipment manager or something like that, right? He ends up selling it because he's getting married. Oh. And I think that is why 
he says, you know, um, you know, he was young, starting to build a family in his early 20s. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things where he had a game used, and I don't know what game it was from. I don't even think he really knows, but it's that FOMO where he's just like, oh my lord, I wish I still had that in my collection. But over the years, like, my mother's kind of embraced it when it comes to that sort of stuff. Like, he, for some reason, got a hold of an Olympic torch. Like, that was used in 1980 Olympics. Like, just ridiculous stuff. Like, I don't even know where he gets it from or how, but it's crazy to me. So, you know, I think that's why in my house, household, like, getting things and memorabilia and stuff like that was mostly encouraged. Um, and then, of course, him and my brother are big autograph guys. They love getting autographs from, you know, like Mike Tyson and, and you know, boxing. Really a lot of boxing. Um having the boxing hall of fame right around the area uh, well as, as kevin would know um you know they had the opportunity to meet a bunch of boxers and stuff like that so a lot of autograph gloves and, and stuff like that and it just autographs just literally don't interest me whatsoever i'm not a not an autograph guy so. nope that's our tangent <laughs> all right yeah that's our tangent for the day so i want my i want my beanie babies you son of a bitch. well that makes me a son of a bitch. So anyways, uh, why don't we get right into it? We're talking Over the Edge. No, not that Over the Edge. 1998's version of Over the Edge. Uh, it is May 31st, 1998. We're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Wisconsin Center Arena. Uh, close to 10,000 people in attendance. Uh, the Wikipedia attendance says 9,822. Uh, this is an interesting event because it's one of those events where the poster features Ken Shamrock and he is nowhere on the card. Nowhere on the sh um, <laughs> What was the plan for Shamrock? Do you guys know why he would be featured on the card? I mean, this is like the It's Time episode where Vader was on there and he's nowhere to... Um, be on the card. So what do you think maybe we're in the plans for Shamrock at this point? I have no idea. What, nothing really jumps out at me at the time as to what plans were. Um, I remember we had spoken about the last episode that during that six-man tag, he uh, he never really tagged into the match against the nation. And maybe he just continued to have issues with uh, certain injuries that were healing up and he just needed some time off. And Probably by the time well, the posters were planned months and months back, uh, they had to probably pivot off of it and just, you know, had to go with it no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean he was going to be in the title match or anything. He was a, a face on the last pay-per-view. I'm sure they weren't going to switch him quick and have him feud with Austin. He was also already very popular. Why not feature him? But he had these rotating series of injuries or, you know, some sort of issues going on with him. And he, he hasn't had his IC title run yet, has he? No. Yeah. Yeah, it's always, um, they always say, of course, plans change. And, and looking at these old, you know, now it's it's pretty easy to get a digital mock-up and, and change out the wrestlers and Photoshop them in and out. But, you know, this these late 90s when things were planned so far ahead for cable networks um, and for the pay-per-view, you know, buyers, it's kind of... Uh, you know, a little interesting to look at who's on the event and who they had plans for and then how they got derailed and stuff like that. So uh, we are presented by Gastrol GTX. Uh, we have an intro video and I didn't write anything for the intro video, so it must just have been an okay intro video. Oh, I, I, I like the intro video, the whole you must conform. 
You know, I thought, you know, just trying to continue that push that storyline between Austin's unwillingness to to buy into the corporate standard and and just he wants to just be the BMF and go nuts and be, you know, be the face of the company, which is great. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it was a good video and it it helped us year, you know, decades later for just how hot this angle was. Like I I don't even know what I could compare it to in the last five, 10 years. No, I, I have a question for you guys. You know, uh, with the Attitude Era coming in, and of course these videos where they're showing, you know, dictator regimes and stuff like that, and then comparing Vince to that. Do you like these Attitude Era videos better than the previous videos we saw where they're recapping the whole, um, you know, kind of storylines that, that, that were, you know, in the previous pay-per-views right before the Attitude Era? Um because obviously they've they've kind of shifted in tone a little bit and they're not the way they recap the storyline is completely different it's more attitude era obviously than new generation era if that was what it was would have been called but um do you do you like it or does this one just fit better than the previous ones that we have seen I, i i've been impressed with all the videos i guess it just goes along with whatever the tone is for the show or what's going on i guess bigger picture wise for the company at the time they're just you know wf's on the precipice of a huge huge shift and we're getting to that attitude era and uh, we're i mean we're deep into the attitude era at this point and we're establishing that mcmahon you know a non-wrestler but it's now becoming like the biggest heel character on tv and the whole boss versus employee kind of storyline here. And it's really pulling at the heartstrings of, of a lot of the viewers who, who, you know, are in that similar frustrated situation of not wanting to, you know, do as the boss says, so to speak. I think it's the pre-Attitude Era trailers, you know, wrap-ups or whatever at the start of the show is more like a commercial for something on TV, whereas these ones are more like a movie commercial. They're both well done. They're both trying to get you to watch their product, but one just feels bigger. So you, you like these sort of movie trailer style yeah, Attitude Error ones it, it, better it, than the previous ones? See, I like the previous ones, personally. See, it, it's not even better. It's just... It, it, it's promoting a different format. You know, like, there's, there's great TV commercials. You're like, oh my gosh, I have to watch that tomorrow night. And there's great movie trailers, and it's just two different, two different but similar things here. So these add to their ones. It's like trying to get me to watch the big summer movie. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Um, so let's get into it. The first match is LOD 2000 coming out with Draws and LOD 2000, Sunny. Oh, God bless her. You know what? She's got a bright future, that Sunny. It's too bad because we see her. Yeah, we see her, and then we see the other diva that was, you know, making the waves in the WWF the time later in the show. And they're just like, man, oh man, I just wish <laughs> Tammy could have gotten her stuff together because there could have been so much more that she could have contributed to the business and become a bigger, bigger focal point than what she already was at that point and could have been in time to, uh, in time to come. But unfortunately her personal, personal demons, personal habits just unfortunately got the best of her. All right. Question. There's three sad stories in the ring. Which one is the saddest? I would say draws. Because it was accidental? Yeah. Yeah, because he seems like a genuinely good person. Absolutely. Like, 
And I mean, you look at him here and he's just, you know, having debuted, done the crossover from ECW. I, I forgot like how big, how jacked Draws really was. Very green in the ring, you know, uh, as a rookie, so to speak. But um, yeah, I mean, so much more could have come with Darren Drozdov. Unfortunately, that accident that he has in about a year, year and a half from this timeline, uh, just it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so we get LOD 2000. So we got uh, what, Hawk and Sonny taking on Eight Ball, Skull, and Chains. Hawk and Sonny, yes. <laughs> with Skull, or with Chains. Uh, of course, we get, we get the disciples of Tyke making myself crack up there. Uh, yeah, do you think they should battle someone named Eight Ball at this point? Probably. I, I mean, I think they already do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so they're taking on uh, the cycle. The, the what did they call it? The apocalypse of di- disciples, disciples of apocalypse. DOA disciples of, because their opponents are dead on arrival. Okay, they're taking on the DOA uh, with chains as the thing. So I have three notes. Okay, <laughs> number one, what is this ending? Number two, was that the worst pile driver I've ever seen? And number three. Is this the best version of Twin Magic we've ever seen? Please ask Educator. <laughs> so, so why don't we go through it, uh, Educator? Break down the match, and then we will talk about Twin Magic. Absolutely. Uh, we start in the ring with a big six-man brawl before the match officially starts. We see Draws being uh, very physical in the ring. Of course, the Legion of Doom—they've shown up in their full entrance gear with the helmets and so on. New updated ring gear as well. Uh, during the six-man brawl, or just after it had finished up, we see or we hear Jim Ross going over again the history of the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. Loved how he's you know th- doing a throwback, talking about their '84 tag team title run in the AWA, their '88 tag title run in the NWA, and then their '91 tag title run in the WWF, and how they're of course trying to get back into the title picture. Uh, going to what uh, Matty Treats mentioned, absolutely loved the pile driver spot, not because of how awful it looked, but instantaneously Jerry Lawler on commentary just flat out saying, oh, he didn't hit it, he missed it, like instantaneously knew right before Hawk completely stood up and no-sold that pile driver. Yeah, it was a brutal, brutal looking pile driver. Like he was trying to drop on the side of his hips rather than square down. Just to try to save us, or try to just be gentle, I guess, and protecting Hawk himself. But yeah, it was not a pretty looking power driver whatsoever. During the match, we see Hawk uh, working over one of the DOA. He climbs to the top rope to do a flying clothesline, dives across the ring, completely missing his opponent. And the momentum causes him to tumble and roll outside where he's attacked by chains. We see Draws do a run over to the side of the ring near the entrance where Chains is attacking um, and are attacking Hawk and essentially make a save. Hawk eventually gets rolled back into the ring and DOA continue to tag in and out and work on Hawk. There's a lot of heelish moves by uh, the twins, uh, Eight Ball and Skull, in this match continuing to flirt with the idea of the heel turn of what used to be the eight-man team at this point. Crush is gone. I'm not sure if he has debuted yet in WCW at this point as a member of the NWO, but they're now just trying to salvage the old DOA team, and now it's a six-man team. 
Lots of heelish maneuvers uh, that the Twins from the DOA team are continuously doing. We see at one point Chains does a distraction at ringside uh, to the referee, kind of distracts the referee, Jimmy Corderas. And we see Eight Ball and Skull double-teaming Hawk with the tag rope and the choke uh, continuing throughout the match. Eventually, Animal hits, gets the hot tag. He gets in, starts cleaning house, hitting clotheslines on both members of the DOA. The finish shows DOA attempting to do the twin, I even called it the twin magic swap out, uh, on one of the hurt men. And eventually, Draws climbs up on the apron, and as the now fresh DOA member uh, hits the ropes to eventually do some kind of offensive maneuver, Draws kicks the best, uh, the freshman in the back of the head, or actually hits him with a clothesline into the back of the head and the shoulder region that propels him into Animal. Animal does a, a scoop power slam, and we end up getting the pinfall, one, two, three, for an LOD 2000 victory. This is not a good match. <laughs> this is really not a good match. Eight Ball does a swinging neckbreaker to Animal that's like one of the worst things I've ever seen. Uh, worse than that pile driver move. Um, what is exactly... Now, I'm not a motorcycle guy to my knowledge, neither of you guys are, so I'm not quite sure what a beautiful Titan bike is. Other than they couldn't get a deal with Harley Davidson and WWF was still Titan Sports as a corporation at the time. I'm a I'm a big motorcycle guy. No, oh, okay. Titans a it is a name brand. It's a it's a really good brand. King, it's interesting to watch Jerry Lawler in the background and his line of sight never breaking off of Sunny the entire time. Uh, Treats, who's the biggest heel in this match? Biggest heel in this match. Yeah, cocaine. <laughs> Jeez. I was going to go with whoever put up a sign that blocked Sonny's entrance. Oh, I know. You know, Sonny, at the one point, she, oh, God, I love her at this point. Not now. Well, she's grandfathered in, so. Well, like grandmothered in from the looks of it. Um, is this the most we've ever seen Chains do in his WWF run? Just his interference in this match. Now, I, we talked before about Farouk, how much of an appreciation of, of his work, I have a huge amount of appreciation for Animal because for some reason, I always thought Hawk was the star of Legion of Doom, Road Warriors and every match has been Hawk gets the beat down, Animal gets the hot tag, and Hawk has to be protected because of whatever's going on with him especially in this match, he looks awful he looks lost at times he's definitely battling something and for the educator to quote Raven, he's looking a little pudgy, Monsoon. Absolutely. I was going to make a comment of that. He's looking awfully round in the middle, very thick. And, uh, yeah, this is unfortunately the, the rebranding from a few months ago as the LOD 2000 team. Hawks demons are really, really starting to take over. Either he's missing a lot of the gym time or, you know, uh, his personal eating habits and, and drug and alcohol habits are really taking over. Or, you know, part of it could be to age and metabolism and stuff like that. But while Animal still looks great and is solid in the ring, Hawk, unfortunately, we're starting to see uh, the downward spiral that he's beginning to go through. I remember when Animal showed up as the mystery opponent in WCW later on at some pay-per-view, like a four-way match. Um, Animal and Heidenreich 
whole other thing there. But I have respect for he's just trying to do something with the legacy with all that he built up and trying right. to protect it from the damage Hawk did. Right. Not seeing animals like a saint in his life. I don't know, you know, details or anything. But he's he's the only one out there protecting all that they've accomplished. And Hawk just keeps screwing up. Right. Yeah. So my question to you, uh, the educator of excellence, is this the best twin magic we have seen so far in the In Your House <laughs> series one and then of all time? Because we've seen twin magic from, do we see Skip and Zip do some twin magic? Absolutely. The headbangers in that match, which is interesting because they're not even close to being twins. Right. At least the gear that they wore always set them each other apart from one another. Um, and then eight ball and skull. I would definitely say so far the eight ball and skull attempt has been the best so far. And then where do they compare next to the Bellas and why are the Bellas better? Twin Magic. <laughs> okay, moving on. Do you have a not uh, cricket sound for that? <laughs> I got to figure out what kind of sound we get for I him. I have a suggestion. So Treats, I have a suggestion for sound to put in there. Yes. For the educator for any Bella reference. What about, um, because you do crickets for me, so I'm thinking another nature sound. What about a birdie? A birdie? A birdie. Like Frankie? <laughs> Frankie. I was going, more going with their child, but. Ah, right. uh, birdie, Bella. birdie Bella. Well, yeah, but that's Bree. I think he, I think the educator, if he had to pick one Bella that was okay, might be Bree more so than Nikki. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because he's more of a fan of Daniel Bryan than John Cena. I think he likes Cena, too. I don't think he's anything against Cena. I think what Cena does outside of the ring is very impressive, obviously. Right. But uh, I just think that I think Brie understands her place, like place in history. Uh, so let's move on to a nice... Uh, segment with the rock and i thought this was very interesting and i'm going to bring this up to the educator is it me or did the rock have a ic title with a purple strap i uh the the new ic title that they unveiled the night after wrestlemania 14 i absolutely hated the slim design there's so much prestige in history with the that classic version of that championship title from when it was originally unveiled in the, the Tito Santana second run to Macho Man, all the way up to having Rock having it. I just, this version of the title to me, it just seemed devaluing the physical title itself. I was not a fan. The thinner, slim design, it looked like a toy sitting on Rock's shoulder with how big Rock was. They did a couple of modifications and updates over time, and they ended up making a thicker or a wider i guess center plate so it had a bigger profile to it but i just in my notes here i just i just wrote out gosh i absolutely hate this belt it looks terrible for some reason the blue or the purple strap i don't i'm not sure off the top of my head i don't remember it being that way but i just the unveiling of the belt it just looks so different and i realized you know, it, we're trying to move forward the times and update things here and there. But, you know, change for the sake of change, I just, I don't necessarily agree with it. 
Uh, like it's nothing with the the strap color. I enjoyed it when uh, Warrior was first one. I remember changing the strap color for the IC title a lot, and I think he did the world title too. Um, and then it's just funny who you remember having certain versions of titles. I don't remember Rock having this version of it, and where he did, but I just like he doesn't enter my mind for that one. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Rock's being interviewed. Farouk comes in and gives him a pile driver, and a pile driver is in like every match as we go through. I mean, it is. Uh, I think it only misses one match, and that's the uh, match number three, which is Mark Merrill versus Sable, which we'll obviously get to. But um, just kind of interesting how the pile driver is going through, especially with revisionist history. And I always thought that they banned the pile driver after Stone Cold got hurt at SummerSlam, but apparently they did not. Um, so The Rock then is um, has a neck injury. Uh, the Rock with his, did you guys notice his leg? He is right knee. He must have been nursing some kind of knee injury or hamstring injury. He had a very much longer noticeable wrap around his knees. And we're so used to rock with the, just the typical basic wrap and knee pads, but he definitely had a much bigger brace around his right, uh, right leg. Farouk with his run in, he attempts to hit uh, rock with a chair, but rock knocks the chair out rock doing that swinging top row or does that swing of the chair to the top rope. And then the chair bounces back and hits Rock in the face. I, I appreciate that spot. I think that's a great comedic spot. The pile driver spot that Farouk does, I, I wish he didn't accidentally knock the chair slightly out of the range where he sits out on the pile driver. But the physical pile driver, my goodness, that was just a square stuff drop right on Rock's neck and shoulders. Lawler had to be blushing in appreciation of how square that pile driver hit. That was stiff as you know what. It was crazy. It, it's great. Farouk looks like a star here. That pile driver is great. Like the like treats was saying, we thought it was banned by now. Maybe the show was okay, everyone. After tonight, we're no longer doing it. So everyone get it out of your system. Okay, just go out and pile driver it up tonight. Then it's all over. Talking about people, you know, we don't remember having this version of the IC title again, why didn't it fruit? Just one run a month, something, you know, and maybe potentially there was thoughts of, of doing it here and going back and forth over the summer. But then in, in the background, we've got a bigger uh, storyline going on with Owen having joined the nation and Owen trying to get retribution on triple H. And eventually we get this whole summer of the, the, Triple H-led DX versus the Nation of Domination. So it's kind of like trying to wrap up an old storyline and trying to slowly phase Farouk out so that focus can be now made on what was a, a much ba- bigger storyline, Nation versus DX. Yeah, so we followed that up with um, Michael Cole interviewing Stone Cold. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought it was also stuck out to me is Stone Cold's title has like a dark blue strap to it why were they changing the leather strap colors on this their uh, educator any idea why was it attitude era just something different or not sure why i do remember when this particular championship belt also debuted uh after wrestlemania i do remember this one having the darker navy blue strap to it not that of the intercontinental title but it just seemed like there was just a whole rebranding with the you know the two singles titles right after Mania and 
And he, and here we are now seeing this, what was referred to, I guess, really as the big Austin belt, since he was the one that kind of debuted it. Um, not sure why the, the different colored straps, but I appreciated this world championship more than the Intercontinental. Do you see a time where, because right now, obviously, in the WWE, they do the side plates. Um, you know, they used to have the nameplate on the front. They had the side plates. Do you see a time where uh, they would have each superstar or wrestler or whatever you want to call them, whenever they win the title, have their own custom title? So you would do a, whatever color strap you want, and you can see you could do an online video of why they chose this strap with this plate and this. Because I really think the customization of the titles they would sell like crazy on their website. Um, and that's really what I think a lot of the times where they do these title redesigns and stuff, it's to sell the replicas, you know, selling them at $300, $400 a pop. You're, you're making a lot of money there. So do you see them introducing that or could they introduce it, introduce that going forward um, instead of fighting over the same design with a different side plate? Right. Um, you know, they started to do that right around this time. Well, about, it'd be about a year or so, I believe. They eventually did the Smoking Skull Belt for Austin. There was the Brahma Bull Belt. They did create it. It never made TV. It was never used. Uh, that one was specifically created for The Rock, of course. Um, prior to this, I mean, we're digging way back to 87. They created a special, it was the Andre title for the WrestleMania three match because the championship title that Hogan had was not going to fit around Andre the Giant's waist, so they created this extra-long version. And it's actually a very underrated title. It's a very nice-looking title. Um, I, I very much like that particular championship belt. Wish they may have considered, you know, um, using the plates on that when they eventually did a redesign a year later to Hogan's title that eventually uh, made air on Saturday night's main event, or the main event one, when... Hogan was defeated by Andre in the whole double Hebner, Ted DiBiase shenanigans. That's when the old title or that particular title was replaced. Wish they would have used those plates uh, or, you know, reused those at some point in history because it was a really, really nice looking title. But again, going back, I think with the idea of the, the, the show business and the, the idea of, you know, the storylines continuously changing – it made sense to do the customizable update the two side plates, lots of opportunity to, uh, you know, certainly sell and make a profit. Do you wish they would? I know you bring up like the Andre title, um, WWE shop.com. Like say if they released that belt, would that be something? Do you buy the titles at all? Cause I know you're, you're our belt guy. Yeah. I, I love belts. I do not physically own uh, uh, have possession of any championship title uh I, I would love for them to go back and because the, it is a big thing where they're selling current stuff and even attitude stuff i would love for them to re-release championship titles from the 80s in particular the the hogan 86 title that looked very similar to the old nwa tv championship I think that is a great visually looking title. Uh, I do believe, I mean, you could order titles like Dave Milliken. You could order titles from them. Reggie Parks or Jay, I think it's Jamar now. 
you could get championship titles from them, not directly from WWF, that are mock-ups of these, and they are very, very impressive. But, yeah, you're going to pay a good chunk of money for them. They should also release the Mabel King of the Ring title that was never used. That that just, I can't believe that actually was a thing. It's crazy. I want to see that. Um, If you could have one title, what would it be? Uh, The classic Intercontinental. With the old WWF block logo. So we're talking like the Ricky Steamboat, Macho Man, Randy Savage, that title. Kevin, what for you, too, what would be one title that you would own? Only one, probably the Big Flare belt. Big Gold? Yeah, if I'm only doing one, I think that one. Now, would it be the one that has the big bend folding slightly back when it got damaged in Japan? Because that was like the original. I mean, this when they re- when that was the title that Flair brought with him to the WWF during his first run and they had to return it back. And then when it became a part of the NWA and it went to Japan, there were stories that it got bent during the whole Masachono, Great Muda, Barry Windham, that whole timeline, like 92, 93 kind of deal. I think if I'm at the point, because, you know, I don't have treats kind of money here. Right. So I think, you know, I think if I'm at the point where I'm getting one of these, I'm not going to argue if it's spent or not. Right. I'll just be happy I had one. There have been so many companies that have, you know, created versions of that championship title, uh, the big gold, and just you line them up next to each other, the tooling, they're just, ugh. Some of them are just absolutely atrocious. It's like you might as well just did like aluminum foil on cardboard. I'm surprised the WWE hasn't released like a bent version, like replica. Right. Like with the the bend in there, yeah. uh, and the one title I always well I I have the replica of is the million dollar title. <laughs> I always just loved that. So that's belt talk, guys. Our new segment. So after that, we get Tennessee Lee introducing Double J, and that's what he's dubbed as here, just Double J, um, not as Jeff Jarrett. Um, I guess it's kind of like a Triple H sort of thing. Uh, he's taking on the lethal weapon, Steve Blackman, and we are greeted by Al Snow on Spanish commentary. This is whole thing's all over the place. Um, would you guys be surprised? Do you guys know the history of Blackman? He actually was like a, an enhancement talent in the late 80s. And uh, he started in 86. Yeah. yeah. And what, which I, I found fascinating because I'm watching this. I'm like, oh, Blackman really, to me, did not look good in this match. I thought he looked like the work just didn't look right to me. And I was like, oh, he must still be new. And then I looked, I was like, oh, my God, he started in 86. But then he had health issues. Yeah, he had some health issues. And um, he was up in Canada, I guess, training as well. But yeah, he was yeah. on Stampede WWF. Wrestling. Yeah, he was in WWF on WWF television in the late '80s as you know, enhancement talent, so to speak. Did a few shots here and there, um, had some health issues, and then I remember just listening to a recent, I think it was Bruce Prichard podcast, uh, something to wrestle with that they you know did some studio shots and he had gotten back into shape and and was doing the whole ninja kung fu kind of stuff and Vince was impressed with the video that he saw. So him and his entrance with those two, um, they're not called kendo sticks. I don't know if I can't remember what they're called, but yeah. Glow sticks. Okay, yeah, those the sticks. Just going absolutely nuts with his intro and, and then eventually being used in the match and incorporated in. So it, it's a new type of character that we haven't seen with the mar- with this particular type of martial arts background you know kind of deal. So impressed for, uh, you know, I know you mentioned some of his stuff was off and, and I absolutely agree. 
just impressed with the progression that he had made from his debut around Survivor Series uh, about six, eight months ago to where we are now. Um, decent match between the two to, to uh, continue the, the pay-per-view. It, I feel so bad for him because I feel like there could have been something there with Steve Blackman, but it's not right now. I would have liked him as a heel for one. And like the the martial artist for hire, so uh, he'll manager. You know, uh, a talent would be like, "Oh, hey, I hire Steve Blackman to take up my opponent." Like uh, upcoming match here. What if Yamaguchi San was like, "Oh, I hired this martial artist here, and he's going to take out Bradshaw, right. and then we don't have to deal with him." But have Steve Blackman as like assassin for hire during this Attitude Era run of his because he's not cutting promos. He's not doing like a bunch of chain wrestling stuff, but he's coming out there just beating people with these moves, you know, right. beating them up. So why not just embrace all of that? Uh, I did appreciate the uh, wild man Mark Merrow uh, pin attempt here with the, the flip up under the armpits by the head. But, you know, don't bust open the lip. Right. A <laughs> couple of things I have about the match. You would mention Al Snow on commentary. Uh, so interesting to see Al Snow on commentary. He had just uh, had a world heavyweight title match against Shane Douglas at the most recent ECW pay-per-view. And now apparently he's moving on back to the WWF as the Al Snow character, trying to, I guess, get a, get a meeting with Vince McMahon to get hired to become a superstar. They really haven't really explained too much about that. So at one point we see Al Snow on the Spanish commentary. He's got like a poncho on or, or whatever, just really, you know, into the stereotype, I guess, for the Spanish or Mexican, whatever. And we see security escort Al Snow from ringside out through the crowd. And during the match, you could hear the crowd popping for Al Snow. He was probably lifting up the mannequin head in the air to get a reaction. And visibly in the ring, while Blackman and Jarrett are wrestling, verbally you can see Jeff Jarrett mad. And he flat out, you know, you could see him verbally mouth, this is bull, you know, BS. Just probably just frustrated that his whole deal on the side is really taken away from the match thing I was frustrated about this match were the terrible ref angles of shenanigans that were going on that how could referee Jack Doan not see the shenanigans between Tennessee Lee's interference or Jeff Jarrett trying to use a foreign object or whatnot. Um, towards the end of the match, we see Tennessee Lee up on the apron uh, with Steve Blackman uh, trying to swing at him. He ducks Steve Blackman's swing or clothesline attempt and ends up wrapping up Blackman's arms. So Tennessee Lee is holding Blackman, uh, Blackman's arms to then have Jeff Jarrett you know, run across the ring and try to hit him. But Steve Blackman slips out. Jeff Jarrett imitates that he's going to hit Tennessee Lee, but stops just a minute. And now they're looking at each other like, whoa, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, I didn't make contact with you. Blackman attempts a roll-up for a two-count after that. Jarrett then tries to hit Blackman with his martial arts stick, only for Blackman to stop him with a kick of the gut and then hit him in return, in retaliation. Uh, the referee ends up count counting a two-count for that, and then Tennessee Lee uh, runs around the ring and puts Jeff Jarrett's foot on the bottom rope, like directly in front of, of the referee, Jack Doan. How Jack Doan didn't see that 
is beyond me. Blackman, we see, climb the ropes on the outside uh, corner, turnbuckled, climbs the ropes for Tennessee Lee to grab one of those those glow sticks or the, the martial arts sticks that he had to hit Blackman in the back to send him tumbling back into the ring, again, right in front of the ref, how the ref didn't see it, didn't recognize the shenanigans, just the angles that the ref was at, you know, not seeing any of this going on, to me, took away from the match. But as Tennessee Lee hit uh, Blackman in the back to send him tumbling back into the ring, Blackman falls in the ring, Jarrett rolls over on top, one, two, three, and we have a pinfall victory for Jeff Jarrett over Steve Blackman. My biggest thing here and maybe educator can help is Tennessee Lee's on my list of managers. I don't understand the point of even as, uh, as Colonel previously, like some managers make sense that it's pretty girl. That's there's eye candy. Some of them cut promos much better than the talent they're managing. Uh, the next match up, I think the manager's there because he's a translator flat out, you know, but I don't understand the point of Tennessee Lee. Did did Jeff Jarrett have in his contract that he needed someone by his side at all times during his runs? Because he had Road Dog, Tennessee Lee, and then he had the stuff with well, like China and, and uh, is he so like old school in his way of thinking that he always wanted to have a valet or a manager by his side? I mean, look at WCW where he had Deborah and. I'm trying to think of times when he didn't have someone by his side. He had the Harris brothers with him in WCW as creative control. He had uh, all of TNA under him as he owned it when you know he started that. Yeah, it's 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 kind of when you when you have all these years to look back on someone's career and see everything going on. It's kind of interesting just to kind of notice like details like that. Like, yeah, there's no point to Tennessee Lee whatsoever. And Jarrett can cut a promo. It's not like he couldn't talk and need someone to do it for him. It almost hurts his character that he's got Tennessee Lee with him. More of a distraction, really. It takes away from Jarrett's overall. Very, very capable in ring. Very capable on the mic as well. So it almost takes away. It's, it's more of a distraction to the fans, the annoying pain-in-the-butt manager, as opposed to, you know. I, I just I agree with you. I don't see how the Tennessee Lee character... Um, so this is, you know, Robert Fuller, who is a known tag guy in the seventies, tagging with his cousin, Jimmy Golden, uh, and then doing the whole idea of the stud stable and then eventually working up to Colonel Robert Parker and so on. I just, what, what was the enhancement that he brought to the Jeff Jarrett character at this time in 98? I just, I don't see it. Jarrett was very, very capable on his own, or at least it, it appears very capable in ring on the mic on his own. A veteran yeah. at this point. He's, I mean, Jarrett's 31 at this, 30, 31 at this point. So he's, he's 12, 13 years into the business. I just, I just, I don't see the need for it. No, and it's nothing against Tennessee Lee. I can, this can work for someone else very well. I don't understand the point of it for Jarrett at all. Um, the other question, too, I have for you guys is Steve Blackman. I know we talked about how we started in 86, had the time off, and then came back. And really, I don't think his, it's weird, like, his character, I don't think, fits Attitude Era. And when we talk about this, do you think that a character, his character in style, 
like what time frame do you think it would be better at? Do you think it would be better now, nowadays, or a couple years ago? Um, just because, just because of the way mixed martial arts has come through and kind of the rise of the UFC and the different styles there, like the fans are more accepting of different styles now. I I think he would have at least fit in with. I'm not saying it would have gotten over with the crowd, but it would have fit in with the the direction that the company was going would have been maybe three years prior to this during the whole gimmicky, you know, the the idea of your the type of job that you have is your character on TV, the hog man, the tax man, the, you know, the garbage man kind of deal. So now you have this martial arts guy, very, very gimmicky kind of character as opposed to a professional wrestler. You've got this martial arts fighter who is now doing professional wrestling you have a tax man who is doing professional wrestling you have a garbage man who is doing professional wrestling you have a plumber who is doing profino i think it would have fit in gimmicky wise you know 95 96 when these kind of characters were being used on tv do you think he would have been saddled with the avatar gimmick instead of al snow at that point that actually i don't know hmm. I don't even know who's I can't even remember whose idea the Avatar gimmick was. I know it didn't it didn't get over very very well. Um, I don't know. Hard to say. Hard to say. Put, put him in a mask. Take him back ten years and give him either Bobby Heenan or Jimmy Hart as a manager. Right. He's the silent man from the Orient that knows all these martial arts skills. And he is not going to win the world title, but he's going to be like an in-between feud for someone, uh, a new face working his way up to the Intercontinental or world title level. Right. It'll be a big, a, a big uh, danger on their path. A big, like, you know, not WrestleMania, but uh, a SummerSlam, a Survivor Series opponent. Like, like a, if we wanted to go eight, maybe 1980s, like a Killer Khan, a Sika, you know, yeah. a credible threat, but certainly they're not going to go all the way with that kind of deal. Yeah, but make a lot of money being a main right. event against you know the the baby face. Right. Do you th- and th- okay? So if he never got injured, this is weird. It's the Blackman podcast, but if he never got injured in an alternate universe, do you see him taking on Bret Hart at In Your House One, and he's in that Hakushi role? Oh, in I all honesty, that. I mean, I could see that. Yeah, I think it'd be a hell of a match too. Yeah, especially with him being. F- wrestled starting in canadian stampede you know like him in stampede wrestling and had he had that consistent you know involvement with wrestling from 86 to 95 so certainly plenty of time to hone your craft and and, you know work out and iron out all the intricacies i yeah that i that would have been that's very interesting booking without a doubt yeah see hire me wwe i'll be (laughs) head booker my, yeah, but treats all the travel time away from your family. I know my wrestling buddies would miss me. <laughs> Speaking of, I got I'm got my eyes on a lot. You get Hogan, <laughs> you get Warrior, Boss Man, LOD, and Jake. No LOD though, no. just Jake. Just Jake. Still though, that's I'm big watching chunk. it. Yeah, and I'm watching it. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I can say that on this podcast because it'll be done by the time that's over, but I'm hoping no one notices. Let's keep the cost low. Otherwise, good thing I'm getting a bonus at work. So let's just say that. 
All right, so let's move on. We got uh, a Sable and Mark Marrow video. And then this, to me, is the part where this pay-per-view picks up. Those first two matches, okay, that should have been a Sunday Night Heat, whatever. But this is the point where I think it kicks into gear uh, because we get what turns out to be Mark Merrill versus Sable. But the storyline is that Sable's going to find someone to take on Mark Merrill. And I'll just break down the match because there's nothing to break down. I I figured the educator had like pages after pages of notes to break down move after move here. The chain wrestling. (laughs) He's got, it looks like two sentences written (laughs) and it says the best reason to watch wrestling. It's Mark Merrow's music, man. God, I love this entrance music. I love this rough rock music. It's great. Oh, it's fantastic. So anyways, uh, Sable says that she, watch how I break it down. Kevin, you got your heavy metal. Um, educator breaks it down all the time. So welcome to Maddie's Sable bomb breakdown. Of the <laughs> event. Are you ready for the grind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, that's good. I got to come up with a name. I'm trying to think. Welcome to Maddie Treats presents Grinder. No, no can't no. use that. No, 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 can't no. use that. Um, so anyway, copyright infringement. Um, so anyways, we get uh, Sable coming out saying that uh, she's not going to pick someone else to take on Mark Marrow. She's going to do it herself to get her out of this hole that she has created. Uh, Mark Marrow decides to just let Sable pin him and give her her freedom. And uh, she goes for the pin, one, two, and then say, uh, and then Mark Merrill rolls Sable up for the one, two, three, and he is so, it is so friggin' good. This segment is awesome. Um, and then Sable gets interviewed by Michael Cole right after. What did you guys think of this segment? I loved it. Like I said, I thought this is where the pay-per-view just starts to kick into high gear and really picks up. The crowd pop when he decides to turn on her and do the roll-up, and then the crowd pop of the three, I thought was great. The heel winning, him dancing around the ring like he just won the WWF title after pinning her. Oh, it was great, without a doubt. The fake tears interview with State with Sable, the monotone voice. Uh, I love how Bruce Pritchard referred to that as the Stepford Wives kind of deal. Yeah, uh, just and then later on we see a, a, another segment involving Sable after her defeat, leaving. Um, yeah, I'm just not a fan of the direction this character is. I thought she was so prettier as an individual, being the 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 valet to Mark Marrow, the hair extensions that she has that she's sporting. The very obvious, over-the-top, quite literally, over-the-top plastic surgery that she has had done. Uh, the the two enhancements that she has had, they just look terrible for her body frame. She was gorgeous at, in 96 at, as the valet to, to Mark Merrow. Uh, now, in here we are, 98, what she has become, ugh, so, so much more appealing looking at, at Sunny than her. Oh, by far. Marrow's fantastic here. Mark Marrow is just so great here in the heel row and celebrating and twisting and manipulating. He's amazing here. But Sable's the star. And like you're saying, she's had so much work and surgery done. Like, if you ever see an interview 
with an artist, every one of them will say, eventually you have to walk away from it. Eventually you have to walk away from the art because doing any more could damage it. She right, has to right. walk away from plastic surgery because doing any more is just going to damage what's there. She also, the, the promo and, and the stuff throughout the night and everything, talk about someone that just, she can remember she has to say line and that's it. Don't ask her to do anything else. Right. If you're on stage in any sort of performance, when you don't have a line, you have to stay in character. And remember, you're in front of a camera or in front of a crowd or both. She just says her line and just stands there blank, waiting for the next thing to be said. You fed to her, right? Oh, my gosh. It's like there's nothing there. She's just a shell. You could put a cartoon up there and get more humanity. Right. Just catatonic. Yeah. Between lines. Shame we'll never see her again now that she's out of WWF after this match. Yeah. Um, question for you. Does, I know you were saying like the bad Sable's bad acting. It's pro wrestling. So you kind of expect a little bit of cheesy bad acting. Am I wrong in saying that? Or um, do you wish that it was like a, you know, Julia Roberts or whatever, that level of acting, because I just think with pro wrestling, it's so over the top. It's more theatrical than, than like a movie or TV show that you expect that cheesiness and campiness of that acting. But it's not over the top, like corny. It's just over the top bad. And it's, it's not endearing herself to the fans whatsoever. The only thing it's, that the fans were interested in was the TNA aspect, and that was mm. it. And whereas I more into the, the pro wrestling storyline, blah, blah, blah. It's just deer in headlights lost. And yeah. yeah, we expect some bad promos and some cheesiness and ridiculous and all. Yes, like Chris Candido said, it's pro wrestling. It's been ridiculous since day one. We expect all of that. But when it's bad, it sticks out worse. The only other example I could give is you can ignore a referee for most of a match. You can forget a referee's there, but when a referee's bad, nothing sticks out worse. When there's bad promos and bad acting in wrestling, like to the extreme that Sable is, it sticks out even worse because it's so bad. I will disagree with you. All right. Well, we got a great post-match promo later tonight coming up. Yes. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) Cause we'll have a, we have a disagreement on that as well. So, okay. So we have the rock. Um, he's in the locker room. He's hurt. He's got a neck brace on. He's not coming out for his match. At least that's what he's telling everyone. And then we get Kai and Ty taking on Bradshaw and Taka Mishinoku. Um, and if I told you two wrestlers in this match are still active to this day, would you believe me? They are. I mean, Ta- Taka's still going strong and uh, dick to go, right? Uh, I know. I'm just being a dork. Yeah, Dick Dick Toga. Toga. Yeah, he helped uh, Evil right when uh... IWGP uh, Heavyweight Championship. Just kind of interesting to think out of this whole card; those two wrestlers are still going strong. And Dick uh, Togo really, uh, for some reason, to me, with the way he was dressed, obviously he came off his uh, he wrestled in ECW, gave off like Spicoli vibes, like Louis Spicoli, like the way his his clothing and outfit and everything. you know, that he had. But why don't you go ahead and uh, break it down for us? This, it was an interesting match. Just the dynamic of the, the tag uh, with Bradshaw and Taka Michinoku versus Kai and Tai. 
Kai and Ty being in their street thug gear as opposed to what we had saw, you know, a year, year and a half ago at the ECW pay-per-view in the traditional wrestling gear. Uh, one thing I had noticed, it, to me, it was kind of, I'm so used to Funaki with the blonde hair. And seeing Funaki with his, with regular dark brown hair, it just it seems so like oddly like a completely different person. Uh, notes that I have regarding this match: just Bradshaw just being there is so ridiculously out of place. He is so tall, and he is. And commentary makes mention of this. He he's getting in like the best in ring shape of his career. He's getting jacked. His arms are huge. He's starting to thin out and become extremely muscular. He is such an overbearing presence compared to the other uh, competitors in the match. We see Bradshaw do a press slam throw of Taka Michinoku to all three Kayentai members who were kind of thrown out of the ring onto the floor. Taka runs the ropes. Bradshaw picks him up for a press slam, and he presses him over the top rope onto all three Kayentai members. We Then we get the shenanigans of any time that Bradshaw attempts to tag into the match, all three Kayentai members, they run out of the ring to escape. And they play it off like it's almost as if like Godzilla's under you know here to attack kind of deal, and they're just trying to run at all costs to avoid contact. We see at one point uh, towards the beginning of the match a, a scary looking in the terms of like what an injury could have potentially happened. The kind or the Takamichinoku moonsault from the turnbuckle onto the floor over a prone Shofunaki that Bradshaw had like pushed towards the guardrail and just the way that the guardrail was like, they kind of met at like a corner. And when Taka did the moonsault, it was almost like his, his gut and his sternum almost landed square right on Funaki, who was right next to that guardrail. And I'm sure there could have easily have been a rib injury if, Taka Michinoku had just an inch or two more to the left towards the guardrail. It was just a very, very close accident asking to happen. We see action back in the ring. Men's Teo hits a great double arm suplex. It was more of a suplex throw onto Taka Michinoku. Uh, Dick Togo hits a kind of a front flip senton onto Taka, who was running towards the turnbuckle, chasing after Dick Togo. Togo hits a snapping power slam on Taka for only a two count. Dick Togo then hits a swanton. What we were, we now think of doing the swanton would be Jeff Hardy doing his top rope swanton bomb. We see Dick Togo hitting one onto Taka Mijinoku. I love the great triple team combo on Taka that all three members of Kai and Tai did. We see a spine buster on the Kai and onto Taka. And then the legs are grabbed for a Boston Crab. As soon as Taka's turned over from the uh, for a Boston Crab, a second member of Kai and Tai grabs him from the front to do a camel clutch, while a third member hits the ropes and does a low drop kick to Taka's face while he's in the camel clutch. Just great teamwork amongst all three members of Kai and Tai to do the spot. Taka finally does get a hot tag on the Bradshaw. Fun to watch all three kind of try to grab onto Taka, grab his legs to slow him down, try to get any offensive maneuver. We see Bradshaw catching Men's Teo off the top rope and uh, for a crossbody that then Bradshaw turns into a power slam. 
We see Bradshaw absolutely destroy Shofunaki with a nasty powerbomb. Of course, he's going to be able to snap uh, Funaki around with how much bigger he is and how much lighter Funaki is. Just very, very vicious powerbomb. Kayentai try to do the triple man uh, pose for the crowd onto Bradshaw, but Bradshaw breaks it up. Bradshaw launches Teo with a double arm chicken wing suplex throw, kind of like a belly to back suplex, but a double arm chicken wing throw onto men's Teo. Eventually, Taka gets uh, uh, tagged back into the match. He hits a Michinoku driver on Dick Togo, only for the other two teammates to ent- uh, enter the ring and to break up the pin. We see Men's Teo hitting a choke slam bomb onto Taka. Dick Togo goes to the top rope and does a sent- big senton backsplash uh, onto Taka, and we end up getting a 1-2-3 pin with Dick Togo pinning Taka Michinoku. And now kind of planting the seeds of there's probably going to be a light heavyweight title match between the two in the future. I, I, I have so many questions for this match. One, I actually like this idea of Bradshaw and Taka teaming up. Like, I could have gone with this being a odd couple, you know, buddy comedy kind of tag team here. Chaka going out, working most of the matches. Bradshaw getting the hot tag. Do you, guys, do you guys remember a vignette? I, I just was just thinking of it now, you mentioning the comedy. Was there a vignette, maybe I'm imagining it, where Taka's driving a car and Bradshaw's in the passenger seat and he, like, Taka doesn't know how to drive? Am I imagining this or did this really happen? Do you remember it? I just I mean, remember Bradshaw, like, in a big, like, in, in his gallon Texas hat, flipping out as Taka doesn't know how to drive. He's, like, pumping the gas, pumping the brakes. Maybe, I don't know. It just it sounds familiar, yeah, though. I think I think it did happen. And it was it just goofiness between the two interacting. And it's giving Bradshaw the ability to at least start to shine a little bit more and uh, become a little bit more notable of a presence on TV. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's probably, like, the most enjoyable Bradshaw match I've seen. I, I liked it a lot more than I thought. Um, I'm wondering, was Kayentai an attempt to get another faction in there? Because their factions are breaking apart. McMahon's big big idea here for all these, you know, groups infighting here. We got the three and then soon to be four members of Kayentai. Once I noticed that, I couldn't not notice it. Does no one hook a leg tonight? It uh, depends on if Bret Hart's on the card. I was going to say, they have, all apparently were trained in Stampede. No one is hooking a leg. And, I think Mark Miro does on Sable. <laughs> that's true. He, well, that's more of a small package, right? I think so. Um, it, it was just, you know, I enjoyed it more than I thought. And uh, who knew that Bradshaw was perfect for a role where he got to uh, kick around people smaller than him. It's almost like he built a whole career around that. <laughs> yeah. All right, so then... All right, Kevin. Sad Hulk music time. We get to to Sable leaving the arena. Can you can you uh, can you drop the Sad Hulk music in here? <laughs> From the end of the uh, TV what is show? the Sad Hulk music? You know Sad Hulk music, the Incredible Hulk TV shows. He's walking away at the end of the episodes. No, I don't watch cartoons. I'm an adult. So, anyways, time, back to my wrestling. Biggest live action show of the late '70s, early '80s. Followed up by three TV movies. I wasn't alive back then. Retro Network fans gasping. I know. <gasps> um, so Sable leaving. She's leaving with a toolbox, right? 
It looks like a toolbox to me. Why would Sable have a toolbox? I thought it was a tackle box. I'm going to guess that this tackle box was probably her, like, makeup kit. Just lots of options. You know, I wonder... It looks like a toolbox. I, I like the idea of it being a toolbox. <laughs> I, I wonder if... Uh, because we, we see on Instagram and stuff now, like, WWE has multiple makeup tables and chairs and women and men that I guess travel. Glam Squad. Yeah, Glam Squad. I wonder if they even had anything like that at the time of this show. Like, Sable might actually need a whole other bag of just all the makeup and hair and everything else she might need for a show. I'm sure. I'm going to guess, yeah. I, I, you know what? I, that's a good question. They may have had, like, one person on, but you got to remember the state of their women's wrestling at that point. I mean, there is no women's wrestling. So I'm sure that was probably one of the cost-cutting measures that we're going to get rid of people that do makeup and stuff like that, and everyone can do their own. I mean, honestly, like, Sable, Sunny on this, I think that's it for this show. I'm sure there's, like, a little bit of powder for, you know, uh, the announcers, maybe. You know, like, just a little bit of uh, TV powder there. And Goldust isn't on the card, so you don't have to have his makeup. Yeah, but he does his own, right? I think he does. And, it, and like, Luna probably does her own. Like, anyone that's doing a lot of face paint does their own. So, um, right. yeah, I don't know the inner workings there. So after Sable takes her toolbox and goes home we get that wwf attitude commercial and then farouk comes out and the rock doesn't come out for the next match but sergeant slaughter comes out and makes the rock come out if that makes any sense <laughs> um and then from there uh we do get the farouk versus rock match uh what you guys think about this one uh i love the the delay of the inevitable you know, Rock's music plays no show as the Finkel announces or the Fink announces him as Intercontinental Champion, leader of the nation. And we get nothing. Then the re music plays up again and then still no show. And then we end up getting Sergeant Slaughter, who struggled on the microphone to get his point across about he's giving the Rock a 10 count or he'll be stripped of the title and it will be awarded to Farouk. So uh, love the playing up of the storyline. Eventually, we do get the match between the two. Short match for what it was. I, to me, the thing that I was frustrated most with was there was the spine buster botch, and it was the rocks. I feel the rocks' fault with his feet, and he didn't drop the way that he should have on the spine buster. And then there was the awkward pinfall count with the foot on the ropes so that we do see better in the replay after the fact. Uh, but short match, and then the playoff afterwards with the run-in with uh, the Nation, and then the New Age Outlaws and the rest of DX trying to come in and make the save. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a shame because Farouk's looking great at the beginning of this match. Like, honestly, given just kind of, you know, some freedom to call a match, do whatever he wants with it. Don't have to worry about, you know, Savio and Crush or the rest of the Nation or, you know, 10 people at ringside. More people come out later, but he seems to have room to breathe at the start of this match. Yeah. I, I really like the opening. His two pile drivers are great. Looks fantastic. Looks just so devastating. Farouk should have used that as his finish. He should have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, good story with the rock and the foot and the ropes and, you know, uh, getting away with it. Nation makes save. DX comes out. There was two little things at the end. Uh, 
One is Owen takes his shirt and wraps it around the, ne- the rock's neck to use as a neck brace, which just seems like an Owen improv thing, but it's so funny to see it. And right. th- them just walking down. And then there's real odd thing where Triple H puts a sign into the ring, like slides it to Farouk, and Farouk kicks it away as if he doesn't like what it says. And I rewound and rewound multiple times to try to figure out like what sign or if there was, you know, something offensive or rude on a sign. I can't figure out what it was. Could have been nothing. But it's just so weird that he would even do it. Short match. It's kind of a nothing match overall. It is. Uh, the, the, the finish was kind of weird too. The double leg scoop with the rock putting his feet on the ropes for the two count. I think just really after, and maybe it's just more, it was more of a botched camera angle, but I was like really frustrated that there was this random two count or random three count. And, you know, Farouk's like getting up celebrating that he won. We do see it at least on the replay that rock did have his foot on the ropes. And then it almost seems like they instantaneously went to that weird scoop finish with rock putting his feet on the ropes, but the ref doesn't see those. I don't know. It was kind of a really nothing match. It was more just to set up the storyline of the Outlaws versus the, or I'm sorry, the the Nation versus DX. Yeah, so uh, why don't we uh, take a short commercial break? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Has the pandemic and quarantine made you lonely? Have you lost touch with all your friends? Maybe you never even had friends to begin with. Do you want to hang out with 30,000 new friends? Well, Kevin Hellions, a.k.a. The Mass Library, is proud to present to you The Blunder Dome. Step inside this virtual arena and be seated next to some other dude you don't even know. Make sure you stay still and show no emotion because honestly, who gives a f***? Watch the house show record live virtually inside the Blunder Dome. Count how many times Maddie Treats has to edit Kevin's audio. Take note of how many pina coladas the educator drinks while he yachts. And by the end, you will be saying, Dome, sweet dome, because quite frankly, there's no place like the Blunder Dome. Live every Thursday on the House Show Podcast and on the Retro Network. Coming this October to the Retro Network. Something frightening. Something terrifying. All those enter. Enter at their own risk. Will you step in to the Haunted House Show? Starting October 1st on the Retro Network. <laughs> Okay, then we're back. We actually have our next match. And guys, if you're going to do a gimmick match between Kane and Vader, 
you have to make it a mask versus mask match, right? I mean, Vader never loses his mask. No one has ever seen him without his mask on. I just, I don't get it whatsoever. The number of times that he, it's either his gear has failed and it's fallen off mid-match, or he's just been frustrated and he's ripped it off mid-match. It it didn't make sense whatsoever. It seemed like they were trying to imply that his face was messed up from the wrench shot. So from, by him removing the mask, you would see the damage done, but there's so many holes in his mask by design that you would see some anyways. And then there isn't any injury to look at. Right. <laughs> like, so in this match, guys, I have a question. Is Kane a face now? Because he's got a huge reaction. I, I, popular, I think but... that as well, that both guys, whether, whether entrance music hit or, uh, well, yeah, when the entrance music hit for both, they really got good pops from the crowd for their entrances. But more or less, yeah, Kane's was much, much more noticeable. Um, yeah, so why don't we go right in? Is this one of the better Kane versus Vader matches or no? I actually, I appreciated the match. To me, it looked like Vader was uh, struggling now. It's been well known that he's had some weight issues in his career. And to me, and I don't know if you guys noticed it, I don't know if he had an issue with ring gear, but like his tights that he had that would go, that went on top of his full body singlet. To me, it looked like he had two sets of gear on in that the the color red, the banding Mm -hmm. did not match the color on his tights. So I don't know if he had issues with like the original pair were too tight on him because it appears that he had been gaining weight or he had to have another set made last minute. And that's why things weren't matching up. But to me that, that extra pair of tights that he had that went around his body gear, they kept sliding down during the match and he spent a lot of time constantly hiking them up and pulling them up. To me, that was a distraction. But the actual competitive match between the two, I for a big man match, big guy versus big guy, I, I thought it was a real good match. We see towards the beginning, Vader hits a, uh, a running hard vertical splash to knock Kane down as they're running the ropes against each other. We see Kane reversing a suplex attempt made by Vader, and he ends up suplexing Vader over. Vader hits a very stiff elbow drop to the inner thigh as he's straddling uh, Kane's legs. He drops down really, really hard and drops the point of his elbow into Kane's thigh. And I it just, it looked very, very stiff. Kane had a very easy body scoop, body slam attempt on Vader. And that got a pretty, pretty good reaction from the crowd. We see Kane climb to the top rope and hit a diving top rope clothesline off the top to Vader. And again, I made comments here after that clothesline that Vader's ring gear was distracting. His his trunks didn't match his full body singlet that he was wearing. The shades of red were different, and it looked like his trunks were just uh, like a size or two too big, and they kept drooping down, and he constantly was yanking them up and hiking them up through the match. We see Kane hitting a choke slam onto Vader and Vader rolls out to the floor in order to avoid a pinfall attempt. Eventually we see Vane, uh, our Vader grab, uh, the ringside, that wrench that they use to supposedly put together the ring with that gimmicked wrench. And he ends up striking Kane with it three to four times as Paul bearer has the referee tied up over some reason. So the referee doesn't even see this interaction. Vader eventually sets up Kane for the moonsault in the corner, uh, and Kane ends up rolling out of the way. 
And the finish we see is Kane scoops up Vader for a tombstone pile driver, drops him square down for a one, two, three. And we see Kane. The weird part was Kane ripping off Vader's mask and handing it to Paul Bearer. And Vader was known to, uh, you know, not necessarily have the best hygiene in between matches and washing his gear and cleaning his gear. But we see Paul Bearer then put the the Vader mask on after that sweaty match and prancing around as if he's Vader and he's doing the Vader symbols with his, with his hand, making the V with his fingers and so on. The key thing for me that I'm actually, I, I forgot this happened and I'm surprised it made air. And then also surprised that it wasn't edited or bleeped out on the, on the network is Vader's post-match interview with Michael Cole. You know, I ain't nothing but a fat piece of, you know what? And I'm surprised that still made air. There's a lot here. Uh, question for both of you, though, to start off with. Have either of you ever gone to Harrow's sports page? Uh, I have not. One thing I did notice about the like crowd signs and stuff is there was a lot of like um, like radio stations. Well, yeah. Well. yeah, so I guess that Harrow's sports page is uh, he's one of the biggest collectors of wrestling memorabilia in that area. So he has store collection display i don't know something i found like an old link a match between kane and vader should not be a a bathroom break match but you can tell a lot of the crowd is just taken off during this and i gotta imagine it's because we've seen kane versus vader before we know vader's losing the mask given the two so we know the outcome of this match so why bother sitting through it let's take this as the bathroom break and buy some merch and wander around and all um, it, it's, it's a shame though. Like I wanted, I wanted more of this match. No educator was saying he had appreciated it. I felt let down by it overall. Um, you know, not since boy meets world, have we seen Vader without his mask? So really it was, it was a heck of a moment there. Why is Paul Bear putting on the Vader mask seems so grotesque. Yeah. Like there's something just dirty about it. Like, I, I only want to say horror movie wearing someone's skin, but I don't have a better example. It really just felt like wrong and uncomfortable to see it. Speaking of wrong and uncomfortable, though, there's that promo at the end. Like, what's the point? Was he supposed to come back, you know, slimmer and trimmer and and be pushed into the world title picture because he looks so good? Is it a punishment to insult himself? And have have to say something so horrible about himself on TV. Like, I don't... I, I have to imagine anything on TV is supposed to lead towards making money. And I don't see how a giant superstar insulting himself and saying he's a terrible talent pushes anything forward. See, I, I disagree. I wanted, after that promo, to see what happens. And this is revisionist history, but... it. I want to see what they do with Vader after that. Like, where does his character go? Obviously, like, does he refocus his training? And it, I mean, we have the, the, um, we know what happens and he's pretty much out of the company in a couple months. But like, to me, I'm intrigued by, okay, oh, Vader's going to get serious now. He's going to get into shape. He's going to do this, going to do that. But, that was just how I when I when I watched it. Now that's how I looked at it. So okay, I can give you that. So if you watching it live, you're like, "Ooh, what's happening next with Vader?" 
I'm interested in the storyline, but us 20 years later, like, well, nothing happened. So therefore this angle is nothing as well. I'll give you that. Yeah, correct. I can see that. Yeah. That's just how I saw, you know, that going ahead. And I, I do want to steal something from friend of the podcast, Joe from at odds with wrestling. And that is hashtag get Paul bearer a figure <laughs> with the Vader mask on for a ringside collectible exclusive. So let's get that trending. Let's put that on there. Kevin, when this goes up, make sure that uh, social media post. Right. Like, yeah. I, I, I was actually thinking that too. I'm like, you could really easily make this figure. Like it wouldn't take much. You could do, you could do like have a cane figure, have a Vader figure, have a Paul bearer figure, put that mask on, him and then also have the wrench as the accessory. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. Yeah, see? So just the just the thought out there. Um so get that hashtag ready. Retweet that. Oh, maybe folks. a little so, poo emoji uh, with it too for Vader. Maybe a little plastic no. poo emoji with him. Yeah. Let's not do emojis in our wrestling figure <laughs> lines, Kevin. Come on, man, get your crap together. Oh, what are we gonna do with him? All right, so uh, so anyways, we get Michael Cole introducing uh, Mad Dog Vashon and The Crusher. Now, is there a mood or is there a mood? The Crusher with the cigar and sunglasses might be the coolest wrestler on this show. I mean, this was awesome. I liked the segment a lot uh, with Jerry Lawler uh, coming out, just talking about how these guys are so old. And of course, if Mad Dog is on the show, we know that leg is coming Without off. Without a doubt. Love, love the segment. Uh, definitely an homage to these two guys. Uh, you know, we, we talked about at the Bad Blood pay-per-view last fall that WWF had put on in October, how they, you know, pay tribute to a lot of the St. Louis legends. Now we're paying tribute to these two guys in, uh, you know, the Wisconsin, uh, you know, Minnesota area there that had significant AWA influence. So without a doubt, I I love this segment. I thought, you know, timing was a little off with Lawler trying to get his, you know, his comeuppance trying to get back at Mad Dog for the initial punch and so on. But I, I, it was a great crowd pleaser. I I appreciated it a lot. The, the pop that Crusher got was amazing. Yeah. Like one of the biggest of the night. Yeah. He looked like, he looked like a crusher. He looked yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, I wish though that they would do this, especially after um, COVID when they start and they're able to travel from show to show, please honor those legends from each city across right. America. Like that would be a great thing to do post COVID when you can finally travel and you know, you're not going to be in Orlando <laughs> or yeah. in Florida Um I think that would really get people out and celebrate just, you know, the wrestling across America, I guess. So now did you, so King stuff bothered me at first. I've never heard of these guys. What, what is this? It really annoyed me. I'm like, of course you have, everyone knows you have. Then when he finally gets in the ring and it's part of a bigger angle to, for him to get beat up, I was like, okay, it makes a little more sense now. And there's uh 20 years, give or take age difference between, King and Crusher and Mad Dog. Right. So, you know, like he probably grew up with them as well. The fight was bad, but it was the best that could be done for, you know, right. the ages of the people involved. So you got to give it. Um, 
did the crusher have the more attractive model because he was more over? <laughs> and like you're saying, uh, you know, the previous one that they did at the Bad Blood pay-per-view, this, you know, uh, sometimes a sequel is a terrible idea, like for a podcast, and sometimes it works, like here. Shots fired! <laughs> Shots fired! <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh... I don't remember and maybe this was just because, you know, the attitude area you think of um, in the whole DX thing. And, and when they were fighting with LOD, you think of them disrespecting the legacy and stuff. But really, the company at this time is has been pushing, like honoring these legends. It's just kind of it's surprising this whole. Yeah, exactly. It's very surprising. Like, I, I didn't expect it to, to see this, especially on of two of our recent shows. So. So after that, we do go into match number seven. And I, I've noticed, too, as the Attitude Era has gone up, the match numbers have gone right. up. So yeah, uh, the, the length of the matches has gone down, though. So Yeah. yeah. So uh, we get DX, uh, which is Triple H and the New Age Outlaws uh, with X-Pac and China in their corner taking on the Nation of Domination, which is Kama Mustafa, Owen, and D'Lo with The Rock in their corner. So... Uh, what did you uh, guys think of this? Um, one thing I thought was interesting um, after all of the shenanigans plays is at the end of the match, X-Pac, who's not in the match, tries to make the save on the cover. They had to do something. I mean, he's not in. The, wouldn't that be a disqualification if he made the save? Yeah. Well, the referee was, you know, his back was turned. Wouldn't be able to see it. So, yeah. No, he was counting the one, two, oh, three. Oh, crazy. During the one two three, and then one two three kid tries. Oh to, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. I just thought that was kind of a lot of shenanigans, a lot of things going down. But we have the educator here to break it down for us. So first and foremost, for me, I particularly like how the Godfather kind of is like looks like the captain of the team, so to speak. He's just a big, uh, you know, resounding appear, you know, presence in that ring. I like this particular version of the Godfather with, you know, he, he is wearing that like bolo like pimp hat, but he doesn't have like the flashy, you know, colorful jeans and stuff like that. I didn't like that, like the neon green pants where that eventually was wearing and so on. I like this version where he kind of has like the silky warm up pajamas. He strips that off and he's got his regular nation of domination, uh, you know, gear, his singlet with the colors on, uh, I, I, I just very much was a fan of The Godfather, this version of The Godfather. Then when he became super cartoony and ho-train Godfather, was not a fan of that particular version. For the match itself, we see Billy Gunn hitting an impressive press slam on Owen Hart after throwing Owen into the corner, and Owen bounces off the corner uh, back into the ring, and Billy Gunn hits that press slam. Owen hits a great-looking spinning heel kick onto Billy Gunn, we see Triple H tagging into the match, and he ends up hitting a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker on Owen when Owen was rebounding off of the ropes. We see Owen hitting a mule kick in the corner between uh, Triple H's legs into the groin, right in front of the ref, right in front of Mike Kyoto. but for whatever reason, Kyoto didn't consider it a low blow, didn't call for a DQ. We see Billy Gunn does a double-leg slingshot into D'Lo into the corner turnbuckle, and then he follows up with a clothesline onto D'Lo. 
we see a drop toe hold and shoot drive uh, by the road dog and Triple H doing a combo team maneuver onto D'Lo Brown. Owen Hart hits a pile driver onto the road dog and we only get a two count from the referee. I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but during the match, I saw a ring attendant walk over to the DX corner and put a bottle of water next yep. to Billy Gunn's feet and taps Billy Gunn and says, here, here's a bottle of water. Yep. I don't know if like he, it was for Billy Gunn or Billy Gunn was supposed to pass it over. Uh, I'm thinking maybe Triple H had a problem, and so he was off camera, and they wanted to get it over to Triple H. Maybe there was an injury or something going on, but uh, I just the the bottle of water spot kind of you know took me by surprise. Back in the ring, we see D'Lo Brown going at it with Road Dog, and we have D'Lo hitting his scoop under the armpit, sky high power bomb. He really muscled up. Road Dog for that power bomb, and it got a pretty good crowd pop. Owen tags back into the match. We see Owen hitting an Enziguri onto the Road Dog. Owen then attempts to do a sharpshooter onto the Road Dog, only for that attempt to be broken up by Triple H. We see D'Lo tag back into the match. So Road Dog, they're getting a lot of heat on Road Dog. D'Lo tags back in, and D'Lo actually hits the moonsault off the top rope. I wasn't expecting him to actually hit it when he went to the top rope. But he hits a pretty nice-looking moonsault onto the Road Dog, again for a two-count to be broken up by Triple H. As uh, D'Lo is continuing to work with the Road Dog, he sets uh, Road Dog up for a senton splash off the second rope. And Road Dog moves out of the way, so D'Lo misses that senton splash. And Road Dog finally gets the hot tag to Billy Gunn, who goes in and just mows through all three nation members. Billy Gunn hits what JR is still calling or referring to as the rocker dropper. Eventually, we it's renamed as the famouser to D'Lo Brown. Uh, during a melee, all six members are kind of going at it uh, with each other in the ring or outside the ring. We see at one point China gets up on the ring apron only for Mark Henry to essentially kind of bear hug her around the waist to bring her back down. And we see China respond by throwing a big elbow to the uh, to Mark Henry's face. And that got a pretty good crowd pop. We see Triple H and Billy Gunn do a spike pile driver, kind of like an homage to the old school brain busters. A spike pile driver onto D'Lo and... X-Bac had thrown one of the tag titles into the ring so that Billy Gunn would end up dropping D'Lo on the uh, title belt when the spike pile driver hit. We get continued uh, schmas of all six guys in and out of the ring. And eventually we see Owen Hart uh, kick uh, Triple H in the gut and actually sets him up and hits the pedigree onto Triple H onto the, that, that same tag title that was in the ring. And Owen Hart pins Triple H for a one, two, three. Finally, finally getting a pinfall over Triple H after the months and months and months of the China shenanigans and DX interference. Now, finally, Owen gets his win back over Triple H in the six-man tag. Owen with the nation was always so weird. But watching it like this makes it helps it make a little more sense. Owen's the last of the Hart family. Everyone else is gone. He's still feuding with DX. He's one person against all of them. He needs help. Oh, hey, here's this other group, The Nation, which also has a deal. 
uh, thing against DX. So even though there's no reason for us to get along, we have a common enemy, and I'll join them. So it makes sense for this. Oh, and continuing with the nation past the DX feud makes it a little weirder, but whatever. Like you're saying for Kama, I I couldn't stand the Godfather gimmick when it showed up for the full like pimp style of it. But he's great here. He's he's the veteran that needs to be respected and is going to command the respect and you know teach these young guys and you know don't play him in cards because he'll take all your money. <laughs> like, he seems like a locker room leader here. He seems great. He's also huge. Yeah, in this match. him and Billy Gunn are massive here. Uh, interesting thing, educator. Correct me if I'm wrong, but has every single wrestler inside the ring for this match held the Intercontinental Title? Billy Gunn, Triple H, Road Dog, even China at ringside. Waltman didn't. Uh, Owen had it. D'Lo in his Eurocontinental. And yes, Godfather actually had it uh, when he was doing the Pimpin' and Easy. He beat the Goldust for it. So the only two that were involved in the match that didn't have the IC would have been Mark Henry and Waltman. One, two, three, kids. See- and, and that's a funny thing. So everyone in the everyone that wrestled the match, everyone in the ring. And if you said, okay, one person on the outside and your three people on the outside are X-Pac, Mark Henry, and China. At this time, you would have been like, okay, well, maybe Mark Henry, maybe X-Pac. Not a chance in the world anyone would have been like, oh, yeah, China's going to win it at some point. Right. And the other two won't ever. Uh, I noticed the water spot, too. I had that on me. I also noticed, uh, I think it was... Jim Ross maybe saying that the road dog has dreadlocks. Those are not dreadlocks. <laughs> Cornrows maybe extensions for sure. He and Sable maybe got to the same you know place to buy their extensions, but definitely not dreadlocks. Uh, other question about the road dog. Anyone else notice he had paint on him? No, I didn't. He had black paint on his body like that rubbed off from somewhere else, and I'm just I went back through everything. I was like, who has paint on them? Or near them, or as an accessory, I got nothing. The only thing would have been LOD from a few matches back. Right, right. And uh, I don't know, maybe something was like dropped at ringside, and then the water was to clean it up too. That <laughs> could very, you know, that, that could it. very well have been the reason for the water spot as well. Yeah, but I mean, this was like a real fun match. Honestly, I think the match could have pay per viewed or uh, main evented on its own. You know, for a show, but it was just really fun. Everyone gets in there, it looks good. Owen finally gets his win. Fortunately, that's pretty much it for his big revenge against DX. Like, I still, you know, our list of people they should have done more with is getting longer and longer. But God, I think Owen's at the top. All right. So then we get to our main event. And uh, so uh, it was funny when I, when the educator was watching this, he sends us. Obviously, we're, you know, we text each other. We're friends. We don't just do the podcast. We're not Pearl Jam. We don't just do our show and then leave. Wow. We, uh, wow. <laughs> that's what they do. Wilson, wow. Um, no. So, you know, we're friends. We're talking throughout the week. And as the educator's watching this, he is like, there's like an hour and a half left in the show. There's been five matches. Like, what's going on here? There's like an hour left. There's like one match left. And uh, the next, what, like 45 Crazy minutes? how long this segment was. This is one of the most entertaining segments. In the whole thing is so freaking entertaining. Out of nowhere to, I had no idea this was coming. Yeah, so we get, we get the Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love video. 
which sets up the whole feud, kind of shows the evolution of Dude Love and their involvement, of course, with with Vince and the whole storyline set up. And how Vince has stacked the deck against Stone Cold because we have um, Briscoe is a bell ringer slash timekeeper. Pat Patterson's going to be the ring announcer and Vince is the special ref. But in what has to be one of my favorite moments in In Your House history, Howard Finkel introducing Patterson, the guest ring announcer, in what is one of the most over-the-top, ridiculous entrances ever, just from what is what uh, Fink has to say about Patterson on these little cards. And then we get Pat Patterson coming out, and he's our special guest ring announcer, and he does the same thing for Briscoe. And he, oh my God, this, these entrances are fantastic. These introductions are so fantastic for Patterson, for Briscoe, for Vince. And they were so, so good that I called up our good friend, Crone Meltzer. And I said, Crone, we need entrances like that. We need ridiculous over the top entrances. So he has made ones for myself the educator and the masked library he said he's the joel gertner of our dudley boys so i'm gonna throw this to crone meltzer i have not heard these yet um i will not hear them till i edit them in but crone meltzer take it away for our introductions ladies and gentlemen I want to introduce to you three of the hardest working, most honest, trustworthy, loyal men that I have ever had the privilege of knowing. These men are considered by some to be the flag bearers when it comes to talent in threes. Known by most as the trios, tag team, champions of the world. These are the finest specimens walking earth. First. Let me introduce to you a man who spends more time at Gold's Gym than Arnold. This guy has the physique of an absolute Greek god, and a jawline that would make Brad Pitt blush. This man also doubled for Bill Goldberg and Santa's Slayer. He is a 14-time World Heavyweight Champion and a two-time Blockbuster Streets of Rage Champion Results may vary when you're talking to the one and only Mast Library. Next up is a man who defines Limitless. Considered by some to be the best driving teacher in the continental United States, he has impacted more lives than the other two by quite some margin. The next generation of children are in good hands with the teacher of the trios as this man will live on forever thanks to his legacy. He is my mentor and there will be no haters when introducing the educator of excellence. And finally, he may be the best example of a man on a mission because for 21 weeks this man has helped lead the house show to the top of podcast row. His passion is unrivaled and the amount of blood, sweat, and tears he puts into his work shows He is the anchor that keeps the ship afloat. The president of the United States of House Shows. The almighty, sweet, Matty, 
treats. So we don't know what those introductions were. Like I said, I just threw them in there. I hope they were good. I'm giving you free reign uh, there. Uh, the Crone Meltzer. So, so thank you for that. But what did you guys think of these over the top ridiculous uh, intros? Because I really think you got to take this match as a whole package. You got to, you know, take it from the video to the introductions to the actual match itself. What did you think of the Fink introducing Patterson and then Patterson's as the guest ring announcer, his intros for, uh, you know, Briscoe and Vince and then his. Oh, I'm not going to introduce this yeah. bomb for Stone Cold. The three by five index cards from the Fink just set the tone, and and just Fink putting over Patterson and the you know the the Rio de Janeiro tournament, and I love you know Jr. on commentary, wink wink, saying that uh, regarding the Intercontinental Title win, and, and then we have the, the Pat Patterson talking about the 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 Native American. Uh, connection to to Briscoe, and then the plug for the Briscoe Brothers body shop, and get, getting getting the live phone number on the pay per view, <laughs> which was absolutely nuts. And then then the oh the, oh, but what about what about the spray painted car with, with the, the Briscoe, Briscoe Brothers yeah, with the phone number <laughs> on it? It was just phenomenal. And then then him going on about Vince. Oh, it was great. And then when it comes time to introduce, I'm not going to introduce this gentleman. But I'm just like, wow. And then when the music hit and the crowd just absolutely popped huge for Austin coming to the ring. It's, God, it's so good. In addition to the wink, wink at the Intercontinental title tournament, there was also what, what did Pearson say for Briscoe? The only Native American in the WWF Hall of Fame. There goes Strongbow. There goes Strongbow. I saw I heard that too. It's so inside, but also so enjoyable for a casual fan too. Like you know, they're just you know exactly what they're doing, and it's so over the top, and it's so ridiculous. You can tell they're having a blast. The whole opening's like a giant roast, really. Right. Yeah. But God, it's so good. And then Vince just absolutely embracing this character. He's so over the top. He's so ridiculous. The, the walk, everything, God, so good. I just started, um, like, maybe a third of the way through. I just started going through all of McMemphis on YouTube and just seeing how the started Patterson's on one of them, too, so far. But just, you know, seeing this angle, which was now has to be looked at as a beta test for all of this that we're seeing now on In Your House. I, I can't express how much I loved it. Like to go in expecting nothing and to now say, this is one of my favorite things I've watched in the series. And we're not even to the match yet. You know? Yeah. The, the beginning of it, of course they've been, um, one thing that I, I did think was interesting and, and we didn't really bring it up as we were talking about it was it, it, they were talking about the undertaker being on the free for all. And I was like, why would you put the Undertaker on the free-for-all? Like, what was the point? And they even brought him, obviously, into the match because he's like Stone Cold's kind of enforcer to make sure Vince enforces, um, as, you know, enforces the rules correctly as the special guest ref. Um, you know, we had Doc Hendricks talking with Vince. And it, this whole thing is so friggin' good. Is great, without a doubt. You know, one thing I, I thought was interesting, and I did point this out to Kevin, just in, and I haven't pointed it out to you yet, educator, was dude love, corporate dude love comes out, 
and he's wearing a, a suit jacket, which happened to be blue. And JR makes a blue blazer right. reference. And obviously with the history of what happens next year, I just thought that was just so kind so of yeah. weird. Like just one of those things where, you know, the world's connected, yada, yada, yada. You hear all that sort of stuff. And I'm not a big person that believes that everything happens for a reason. I think things just happen, but it's just, it's one of those things that, that just kind of stuck out in, you know, I, I think the, as we talk about this, because like Kevin just said, this is a match that you weren't even expecting to, you know, don't remember anything about, don't remember the whole segment, you know, the whole thing that happens obviously with Owen at the next over the edge makes this just a forgotten, forgotten gem, just a forgotten pay-per-view yeah. because you don't talk about the over the edge ever. I mean, it just WWE does not talk about it. And how would you be able to bring up this match and bring up this whole segment and not have people immediately think of what happened and the tragedy that happened with Owen at the over the edge in 99. I mean, you just, people will automatically jump yeah, to that. I mean, the only way I could see perhaps is, you know, the historic uh, Vince McMahon refereed match from May 98, you know, without mentioning the name over the edge, you know, I, I think would be the only way, but this is without a doubt a, a forgotten or a missed gem. This was a great match between the two and everything with the with the two stooges, the Undertaker component, which I completely I, I didn't even remember it whatsoever. I thought it was odd that they kept mentioning Undertaker during the free for all, especially during the Kane match and whether or not he was going to be you know involved with that completely. Like as soon as I heard the gong hit and Undertaker make his entrance, I'm like, holy crap. And then it kind of made sense how they then intertwined Undertaker and the Brothers of Destruction over the summer as a part of the storyline going towards SummerSlam and then eventually everything that happened with, with the three-way with Austin. Well, also, too, think, think about this, is that next month is King of the Ring, and this is the King of the Ring where it's Taker versus Mankind in the Hell in the Cell. So, so this was the start for that as well. Laying the groundwork for future shows and the whole summer of what's coming up. Yeah, just an in- incredible, incredible match. Um, educator, would you like to break it down? Oh, baby, let me tell you guys, buckle <laughs> your chin straps because this is going to be a ride. So, All right, let's go. Uh, make sure you use your blinkers <laughs> and that your hands are at 10 and Absolutely. 2. Absolutely. So start of the match, we see uh, uh, Vince McMahon do a fast count attempt on Austin after Dulug essentially just did a running shoulder tackle to drop Austin down for a quick count. Uh, towards the beginning of the match, we start to hear the crowd beginning to chant, Vince is dead, Vince is dead. Crowd chant in connection to The Undertaker being there. I, I don't think that's what they were chanting. Oh, yeah? It was Vince's gay. Yeah. Really? But they sold it on commentary that they were chanting Vince's dead. I think that's what JR oh, wow. said. You but know what? It's Vince. If you listen to it, it's yeah. Vince's gay. They fooled gay. me. So, oh, okay. So <laughs> commentary tr- did what they tried to do to sell, sell it to something obvious or opposite. So we get to, a little bit of back and forth between Austin and Foley during the match. And at one point, Mick Foley's false teeth fall out of his mouth and are on the uh, canvas in the ring. And we see Austin uh, essentially pick up the false teeth and stomp on them and then throw them out out into the crowd. 
Austin delivers a clothesline to Foley to knock him uh, out of the ring onto the floor. Foley reverses an Irish whip that ends up sending Austin into the ring steps. We get action back into the ring where Foley hits a Russian leg sweep and Vince McMahon counts a semi-normal two count. Foley <laughs> ducks a clothesline attempt onto Austin or by Austin and he puts the mandible claw onto Austin. Austin escapes the mandible claw by essentially beeling Foley over the top rope where Foley does his infamous, my head gets caught between the top and the middle ropes, hanging spot, that same hanging spot that caused him to lose a part portion of his ear in a match with Vader in Germany. And I believe the commentary even made note of that as well. Uh, we have action beginning on the floor and we all of a sudden hear Pat Patterson get over on the microphone announcing to the crowd about a reminder. He's announcing it for the first time, but apparently it's a reminder to the crowd that now this match is now a no disqualification match. Austin throws dude love into Briscoe at the near the ringside uh, timekeepers table and then Austin ends up clotheslining Mick Foley as he's sitting prone on the guardrail. And Foley does a backflip gainer onto the floor. And it looks like he really cracks his head on the concrete floor. So Foley hits hard onto the floor from that clothesline. Eventually, we see Foley uh, recover from his clothesline spot. And he hits a running, twisting neckbreaker onto Austin, onto the concrete floor. Then we hear Patterson again on the microphone during the match that now this is a reminder to the fans that this is now a false count anywhere match. Foley does a back body drop onto Austin as they had brawled up the aisleway towards all of the uh, smashed up cars that were near the ring entrance and Foley hits uh, a back body drop onto Austin onto a car hood. We see multiple pinfall attempts back and forth between Austin and Foley as their bodies are laying prone on the cars. Austin attempts to go for a Stone Cold Stunner onto Foley on top of the roof of a car, but Foley ends up pushing Austin off or in a way and flings his body over the car onto the floor itself. As Austin begins to attempt to recover and he stands up, we see Foley hit a diving sunset flip off the, the hood of the front hood of the car onto Austin and McMahon only is able to get a two count for that sunset flip. We see fully hit a very weak looking uh, pipe uh, shot over Austin's shoulders. He picks up this pipe, which looks like it's about the same thickness of what the ring posts were at the time. He lifts it up over his head, and you think he's going to do like this really impressive, you know, maneuver or hit with the pipe. But when he drops it down over Austin's shoulders, it was just more of a glancing, very, very weak, protected, uh, protective uh, glancing blow onto Austin's body. We eventually see somewhere that Austin somehow gets busted open. We see Foley slam Austin's face on the roof of the car a couple of times, maybe to sell that he's busted open. But when the second or third face slam attempt occurs, Austin is now seen bleeding from, uh, from his forehead. We see uh, Foley missing a running elbow drop onto Austin. He attempts to drop an elbow off from the hood of the car onto Austin, and Austin rolls around and gets a very slow two count from Vince McMahon. 
The guys eventually brawl their way back into the ring, and we see Pat Patterson uh, attempt to trip Steve Austin as Austin's hitting the ropes to do an offensive maneuver. We see Foley throws Austin into the corner turnbuckle where he had removed the protective pad. Uh, we then eventually get some wear down holds onto Austin, and we eventually see a second head throw into the turnbuckle onto Austin for a two count. Foley then hits Austin with a chair into the gut and then does a chair shot over his back. Foley hits a double arm DDT onto the chair, onto Steve Austin for Vince to still only get a two count from that maneuver. Foley ends up charging towards Austin with a chair only for Austin to put up his feet. So he basically kicks the chair back into uh, Foley's face. And then eventually he hits a clothesline. Austin swings a chair into Foley's head and there is a camera cut to Vince watching the aftermath and Vince is just visibly cringing after he had watched and heard that steel chair from Austin crack Foley's skull. And again, these chair shots for me, just knowing everything over the years, they're very, very difficult to watch now, just knowing the concussion issues and CTE and all that stuff. Um, but Vince's look on his face, cringing after watching that headshot to Foley with the chair, it, it would just continue to add more to the match itself. Uh, Foley ends up eventually over time getting up and attempts to hit Austin with another chair for him to miss. And instead, Foley ends up cracking Vince McMahon hard over the head, top down, like swinging from 12 down to 6. And Vince just completely sold it like he was just murdered with a gun or whatever. He just falls flat and, and McMahon's just out for the rest of the match. We eventually get back and forth brawling and then Austin knocks down Foley and we see a second referee, Mike Kyoto, do a run in to do a count. But Patterson grabs Kyoto by the legs and drags him out of the ring to stop the count. And as there is an, an attempt to... Uh, have Patterson uh, continue to uh, act now as a referee for the match. Uh, we see Undertaker drag Patterson out of the ring and eventually choke slam Pat Patterson through the main announce table. So now we don't have Patterson that can act as an official. So now we're down supposedly three officials for the match. Eventually, there's continued back and forth between Foley and Austin and then Gerald Briscoe. Uh, gets into the ring to act as a referee to count Austin down. And again, Undertaker repeats the same idea of dragging Briscoe out of the ring and uh, choke slams Jerry Briscoe through the Spanish announce table. Dude, uh, Dude Love and Austin get back up. Foley tries to do the mandible of claw again to Austin, only for Austin to kick him in the groin really hard. And then he ends up hitting the Stone Cold Stunner. Austin then ends up dragging McMahon's prone body over towards uh, the area where Foley is kind of essentially out. He lays across Foley and then picks up McMahon's arm and slams it down. One, does it again. Two, does it again. Three, the the foreshadowing at the beginning of or in the middle of the night where Vince McMahon had an interview saying that by my hand and my hand alone will this match end. 
And that's what happened. It was, of course, with Austin's assistance picking his hand up and down three times. But McMahon's body and his hands do count a three count. And we now see Austin celebrating in the ring as now the winner of this match. We see kind of a sharing of opposing glares and stare downs between Austin and Taker. Kind of like, uh, you know, a glare of respect back and forth. And Undertaker just walks away back to the aisle, into the locker room. And Austin celebrates as having overcome all the adversity of the match. Great, great match. It's such a hidden gem. Uh, I think we're going to have some discussions about where this might potentially rank. Ooh, foreshadowing. So I'm going to go for the end of the match here first. Uh, you mentioned Undertaker's look to Austin, look of respect. Correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Undertaker one of the ones, one of the first ones to go to Vince because of the Montreal screw job? And I think it was Undertaker saying Vince had to take the hit from Brett. Right. Like that he should take the punch. And Undertaker, be, you know, still a company man, but also you did wrong here, Vince. So was that public knowledge yet? Because for Undertaker being out there to combat Vince and him stacking the deck against Austin could in a way seem like a, a callback to Montreal Undertaker. Like I've seen this once before. I'm not going to allow it to happen again. So I'm going to stay out here. See that? Absolutely. And then was there anything after this match? Cause we are saying the look of respect, but was there anything after like, okay, we had a deal. My deal was I'm going to go out there with you, make sure all the interference doesn't cause you to lose your title. Now in return, I get a title shot. Like, is there anything, anything like that up. ever came out publicly or was in storyline yet? So as we look at the direction of where everything was going for the next pay-per-view, we don't see a Vince, or I should say an Undertaker versus Austin match. We ended up seeing um, a storyline develop to rekindle the feud between Undertaker and Mick Foley, who eventually goes back to his Mankind persona, and we get a match with Austin and Kane. The Vince McMahon thing by my hand and my hand only, it's not just that he's knocked out for the ending that makes it well done. It's the fact that it could count. It wasn't a fast count. Fully didn't move his shoulder and have it ignored by Austin or anything. It's still legit count. Like Austin legit won the match, which adds so much to it. You can't say, oh, you took advantage of it and did a fast count or, you know, anything else. It could still stand is a legitimate win. I think it actually adds a lot to it for it. Right. Uh, to go back to the beginning, just random things I noticed, um, again, with uh, chair shots are just disgusting to see now. At least they sell them. Um, I was watching an ECW show earlier this week, and they no-sell chair shots, which makes it even worse when I'm watching it. Um, uh, but for a move that shouldn't happen, the Foley head and rope spot, I don't understand him ever doing it again. You lose an ear, I don't understand ever, ever doing that move again. And he did. I, just, I mean, you can't lose the ear twice, he I guess. Continuously did it. I mean, it wasn't a one-time deal. He did it a lot in the WWF. Yeah, it's a great spot. I'm not denying that. But uh, why would you do it again? I just don't understand it. Uh, treats might have to come in here. I never realized such a difference in chance between a wrestling show and a sporting event. And usually it's, it doesn't show up that horribly. You know, you throw a beach ball around and do the wave. But the let's go Stone Cold, let's go chance don't really work 
in wrestling. It's like you'll hear for you know a baseball game, uh, whatever. You know, someone ch- chanting their team on. But for the awesome one, like it just seemed really out of place. I'm like, have you guys ever been to a wrestling show before? That's not what we chant here. Well, you know, Ch- chanting in sports is 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 it's different because really. In all honesty, there's not a lot of chanting in sports. Like you're going to hear like third down plays in the NFL. Um, it's more college sports, like basketball. Basketball, you hear more chanting, and you hear, um, especially college basketball. You know, Duke, North Carolina. You know, Dean Smith. You guys know him from previous yeah. <laughs> uh, podcasts. Yeah. But but like individual sport, baseball. There's really not that much chanting. Like where chanting over the years has gotten is European soccer. It's that international crowd, and I think what has happened, especially in the WWE is the night after mania, you know, everyone talks about the crazy, you know, you have people spending thousands of dollars on these travel packages from overseas. And that's when you're getting the more soccer style chance, uh, pro wrestling, because it is so interactive, you're going to have, you know, people chanting. I think ECW was probably the, the really started the chanting and pro wrestling. In my opinion, obviously there was cheering on and stuff like that, but you know, the more intricate chance and you, you know, making their, their voices heard. Um, but you know, they always compare that to like a sports like feel to it. Um, but like UFC and stuff like that, there isn't like a go Connor go. Like there just isn't. I don't know. Just, it seems odd to me for some reason. I'm not sure. Uh, what I did appreciate is people rolling with things in this match. Austin getting cut open. I do not believe was supposed to happen. And everyone just kind of rolled with that. I really think it was sliding off the car that ripped open the back there but you just roll with it because they're all professionals in this match. But we've seen matches where someone's new or rookie or just not as good where they freeze completely freeze and it makes it look even worse. And then uh, another one for that was, um, was it yeah, fully with the chair bouncing? No, Austin had the chair bounce much like the rock spot earlier where bounced back into his head, but Austin seemed completely accidental. I don't think it was a callback or a joke or anything. It seemed totally accidental, but everyone just rolling with it too. Right. It, it just, it, it helped to match when everyone's smart enough to say, okay, we went this way instead of this way. Now what can we do and keep rolling with it? Uh, as I was watching this, um, my kid came up to me he's like, dude, let's do this. Let's do that. I'm like, buddy, I got like 10, 15 minutes left on this pay-per-view. That's all. Let me just finish it. And then we'll go do whatever you want. And we did, but he, gets next to me on the couch and he's watching it and when undertaker is pulling patterson and briscoe out of the ring and then putting them through tables for some reason he thought that was the greatest thing in the world to watch it's crazy he wanted to watch it again he was so impressed i don't know if it's if it's him being a, a kid and seeing some old guys put through a table he's like hmm, sometimes my dad upsets me You're like i don't know uh he also thinks undertaker is a ridiculous name and doesn't <laughs> understand it but he'll get there get there eventually but i mean you know that just shows quality for match he doesn't care about wrestling he's like okay this looks interesting let me watch the three of us weren't expecting anything going into this and love this match like it it shows so much for it for how good all this was yeah i i think going through um the in your house you know the whole series the in your house series i just want to say Thank you, McFoley. Thank you, Deep Love. Like he has been, he is. When we talk about who's been the most impressive, it is it is McFoley and the way 
he is given his every match surprises me like there's a, a bump or you know whether it's falling to the concrete I think for me my favorite McFoley moment and his most graceful moment is that sunset flip off right. the car <laughs> I love it so much so guys that I am on the chalk line apparel website and I am buying myself a chalk line dude love jacket because I just it's so good like that whole even though the dude love thing only lasted a few months like the whole three faces of Foley is so good and he's such a underrated in my opinion um underrated wrestler from from it all he just fantastic and and thank you to 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 Mick Foley because I know you're listening you you weekly so <laughs> I appreciate it. And I really appreciate this match and, and this whole pay-per-view, you know, it's a forgotten pay-per-view. And I think it's because of what happens at next year's event. Um, and unfortunately this match gets lost in that shuffle. So anything else you guys want to add about the match or the pay-per-view itself? Hidden gem, pleasant surprise. Uh, the main event itself, you had mentioned that I kept texting you about, all right, guys, I've got three matches left, and there's still an hour and a half. Oh, I've got two matches left. There's an hour and 15. Like, what is going on here? And, yeah, this whole last segment, as long as it was, it didn't feel like it was a 45-minute segment. No. It was great. I think uh, I think this pay-per-view has inspired uh, some debates here coming up. I think so. Should we get to it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go right to it. All right, let's start, of course, with the match. Uh, is this going to make our top five, do you think? Uh, let's just start with that. It, or should it have the discussion? Yes. I, I, yeah, I think it's got to have the discussion. All right. So let's start at the bottom. Or should we get, let's let's go over the top five matches and then we will start from the bottom and we will try to rank this one. Okay. So, of course, number one still is the Hell in the Cell match between um, Undertaker and HBK happened at Bad Blood. Uh, number two is the HBK versus Kevin Nash a uh, street fight that happened at Good Friends Better Enemies. Uh, number three is the Brett versus Bulldog match that happened at Seasons Beatings. Uh, number four is the Canadian Stampede Top 10, um, or Top 10, excuse me, the Canadian Stampede 10-man tag, um, which, of course, happened at the Canadian Stampede. And then number five is the People's Posse versus Camp Cornette six-man tag that happened at International Incident. So... Austin versus Dude Love. Is it better than Camp Cornette versus the People's Posse? I think it's time. It's been debated many a time. I think this is the time that it's pushed over. I think but it's I pushed think I, it's I'm, I'm overwhelmingly convinced it's pushed out. We're pushing it out because of that fat piece of <laughs> Vader. <laughs> Was he in that match? Can't remember. Yeah, the no. Camp Cornette match. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah. He was the Camp Cornette. <laughs> All right. Is it better than the ten man tag match at Canadian Stampede? You say yes. I would put it above it. I see. You're, I, you're I gonna wasn't... be shocked where I put this. Where I think we need to go with this. Really? Yeah. See, I, was, I wasn't gonna. I mean, even taking the whole thing, I was that Canadian Stampede's just high. It is absolutely high. The crowd involvement, the whole storyline of U.S. versus Canada. I I just think that the, this being a one-on-one -on -one match and the the storyline, the deck being stacked against Austin, 
and then the 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 involvement of the Undertaker with the choke slams at the end, the the chair shot to McMahon, McMahon's you know the premonition of by my hands alone this match will be called to a finish, and you know Austin overcomes and succeeds and. I personally think that this is better than the 10 man tag. Treats any. I completely agree. Okay. I I completely agree. The other thing too, is to think of the matches that came out of this, to think that we have the hell in the cell undertaker mankind that comes spurs from this. Of course we have the Austin McMahon feud as well. That also. And even the, the the Taker Kane impromptu Hell in the Cell at King of the Ring, that ended up doing a t- becoming a title yeah. change as well. Yeah. So you're out of that. You've been voted. You've been voted uh, out of this. They're a sequel quest boy. So. All right. Is it better than Brett versus Bulldog at Seasons Beatings? I agree. Okay. I, while I love the blood between Bulldog and Brett. And I love the the technical wrestling that was going on with the match. I think that this, again, was a better overall presentation of storyline and the things that spurned from this. Uh, a lot of things came from this that this set up. And again, the crowd involvement, the crowd hype, the pops, absolutely fantastic. To me, for me, I, I put it ahead of Bulldog and Brett. All right, so... I actually, we've said before that our opinions are kind of changing, but we're sticking with our original thoughts. I would put it above Brett Bulldog as well. Yeah, and I think I, I think I would as well. <laughs> um, I, I think what happens is the top five list for the house show is different than the mass library's top five list. Right. It's different yeah. than the educator's top right. five list. It's different than mine. So when we're going through this and I say this, like, like, Mass Library here says this is better than Brett versus Bulldog, but not as good as Canadian Stampede. Is you would have the Canadian Stampede match higher on your personal list, right? right. So yeah, we got to go with our collective list here, though, in the debate. Yeah, yeah. agree. And I think what'll happen too is after you know on our last in your house episode, we will give our personal top five Absolutely. lists as well, right. and our house show top five, and we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how that differentiates. Um, yeah, I agree. I think this is. Better than that match. All right. Is it better than number two, HBK versus Kevin Nash at Good Friends, Better Enemies? Uh, Educator, you have so far been the biggest cheerleader for the Dude Love Stone Cold match. So we will go to you first. Is this better than that match? Yeah, I'm putting it ahead of Good Friends, Better Enemies. As much as I am a Kevin Nash mark, and loved that match, the kind of uh, shooty, off-the-cuff comments and remarks that were being made post-match with Nash leaving. I think, again, the overall presentation and the, 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 everything was just much, much better. Whereas the Shawn Michaels-Kevin match, that was like a culmination. That was an end. This opened so many doors to go in multiple directions with Steve Austin, with McMahon, with Mick Foley, with The Undertaker. I am putting it at above, without a doubt. I got to disagree on that one. Okay. I'm keeping Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels higher. 
<laughs> comes down to me, son of a. Oh, I love that match. So oh, I, much. oh, I absolutely love it too. But just going back, and to me, this was not a chore to get through. Certainly, Michaels versus Nash wasn't a chore whatsoever. I just the advancement of the storylines in this match, as opposed to the other being a culmination of an end of a feud. Uh, I I think this was the Austin Foley match was better. Oh man. See, here's my thing. Here's where I come through is I think uh, to me, both matches are equal. I'm going to say, I do not see, and I'm going to, and I want to talk to educator because you are the biggest champion for this match. I don't think that this match will beat the hell in the cell match. I I think hell in the cell is number one. No, No, this is where I, my line is at too. I don't believe it'll be bad. I would not put it above the Hell in the Cell. Okay, so Hell in the Cell match still number one. This is extremely, extremely good, it's though. It's like a 2A I mean, and a 2B kind of deal. Exactly. I think they're so even. Oh. I mean, both pay-per-views had Mad Dog and Sean. <laughs> exactly, right? I just love how violent the Shawn Michaels diesel match is. And like two level. But, but let me ask you this, and and I'm not disagreeing. Besides the the power bomb table spot at the end, what what other violence do you speak of? They just seem tearing to, off the leg, using the leg. <laughs> they just seem to be going at it so much harder. Like it just seemed like a real fight and not a scripted wrestling match. HBK getting hung. Yeah, there just seemed like so much passion in it. Yeah, I'm going to say that Stone Cold Dude Love is not as good. I would put that at three. Okay. And I think that's where it'll end is at three. And but but in all honesty, did you even see this match when you were looking through? We went through after the Hell in the Cell and just a little inside baseball for everyone. After the podcast recorder, we still talked for like 10, 15 minutes afterwards. And I went through every main event and I said, yeah, nothing's even going to make our top five. And this was just shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I, I like the the idea personally of the HBK Kevin Nash match being a one on one affair too. I mean, this one had a lot of moving parts, which I really appreciate. But just what they did together by themselves, right? All right, so that'll put Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Dude Love at Over the Edge at number three. Of course, now our top five is Canadian Stampede, the Ten Man at number five, Brett versus Bulldog. Uh, from season beatings at number four, Stone Cold versus Dude Love is our new number three. Uh, number two is HBK versus Kevin Nash. And number one is still the Hell in the Cell from Bad Blood. All right, guys. So now we got to talk pay-per-view. Do we think this is at the bottom? No. no. Is it in the middle? No. It's closer to the top. I feel at, well, I start at the top third for me. Would you agree, Kevin? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, it's probably about top third for where I was. All right, so we've done 21 of these, so we will start at number seven and move forward, okay? Is it better than In Your House 1? The one we went to? Yeah. As much as I, you know, I hold number one to our heart, my heart, because, again, we were there live. Overall, presentation, match quality, everything that was there, without a doubt, better. Agree. Okay, is it better than number six, Rage in the Cage? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, is it better than number five, Seasons Beatings? Seasons Beatings is the Brett Bulldog. Seasons Beatings is uh, Hunter versus Pigman in the Hogpen match. I'm putting it ahead. Yeah, I would absolutely put it ahead as well. 
Okay, is it better than Bad Blood? I think that's where I'm stopping. At. I think that's where I'm stopping right there, too. All right, so it'll go right at number five, then. Oh, made a bad crack in the top five. The whole yeah. show cracking the top Yeah, five. yeah, so let's just run through our top job, five man. real quick. Uh, number five is Over the Edge, 98. Uh, number four is Bad Blood. Number three is Triple Header. Number two is International Incident. And number one is Canadian Stampede, still holding strong. Uh, one thing about Over the Edge is the only mention of the In Your House brand is right at the front. It was right at the beginning where they, it's the voiceover that says, this is Over the Edge, In Your House. And then that's it. There's no banners, nothing. So they're phasing out that In Your House branding, uh, which brings us really to our last few um, events. I think we have four more left. If I'm doing my math correctly. Educator, you're the math expert with your Steinonomics. What do we got? Judgment Day, breakdowns. Yeah, so our next show will be fully loaded. Fully loaded, forgot about that. Uh, which takes place July 26, 1998. And our main event for that is... Kane and Mankind taking on The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin in a tag match. And was that for the Tag Team Championship? That is for the yeah. WWF Tag Team Championship. Yes. Um, so all we have left, guys, that we as we come up to the end is, of course, Fully Loaded. Then we have Breakdown. And then um, Judgment Day. Oh, then Rock Bottom. And then St. Valentine's Day Massacre. We have five, five events shows. left. Craziness. Craziness. It's been a ride, wild ride, gentlemen. Anything else you guys want to say? Actually, educator, why don't you talk to the to the people at home and break it down for hey, us? Hey, I want to thank everybody for continuously supporting us, checking us out weekly with our run-in shows, checking us out with our full-blown in-your-house podcast from the house show. Want to say thank you again to the Retro Network for giving us the platform to start this project and continuing to give us the opportunity to uh, present our uh, our take on some great retro wrestling from our nostalgia years. I encourage anyone that is listening to our podcast that has not gone to the Retro Network, please go to their website, check out their various offerings that they have, podcasts, articles, and so on. You will be, you'll find yourself just inundated with lots of great things, 80s and 90s, without a doubt. Want to say thank you to my two co-hosts. I love the opportunity to continue to uh, go through these shows together, get each other's takes on matches, spots, the overall vibe of the wrestling scene surrounding this any particular show we look at. Look forward to our continued projects that we uh, continue to have on together. I invite you guys to check us out on our social media accounts. Check out our Facebook page, Twitter, and so on. Uh, I'm sure our mass library will be able to go into a little bit more detail with those. I just want to thank everyone listening. Um, if you need to hear any more of me talking about wrestling, please follow me on Twitter at Maddie Treats. Um, just want to thank, of course, the Retro Network for all that they do for us. And thanks to my um, my co-host here. I appreciate uh, appreciate you guys. And man, and thank you to Mick Foley and Stone Cold Steve Austin and all those involved for that fantastic, fantastic main event. And shout out to Crone Meltzer for our introductions. And Kevin, why don't you take us home? All right. Excellent show today, guys. I am thrilled every week that we get to do this together. And thank you to you both 
Thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to most of the other podcasts on the network as well. Thank you to the WWE Network for the content. Thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. You can follow us across social media at TRN House Show. You can follow my stuff across social media at Masked Library. Masked Library is my per- dot com is my personal blog. And uh, guys, it was a great show. Good times, but it's all downhill for here. I think I'm going to just uh, take my toolbox and uh, walk away slowly to sad folk music. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you three of the hardest working most honest, trustworthy, loyal men that I have ever had the privilege of knowing. These men are considered by some to be the flag bearers when it comes to talent in threes. Known by most as the trios, tag team, champions of the world, these are the finest specimens walking earth. First, let me introduce to you a man who spends more time at Gold's Gym than Arnold. This guy has the physique of an absolute Greek god and a jawline that would make Brad Pitt blush. This man also doubled for Bill Goldberg and Santa's sleigh, I should add. He is a 14-time World Heavyweight Champion and a two-time Blockbuster Streets of Rage Champion. Results may vary when you're talking to the one and only Masked Library. Next up is a man who defines Limitless. Considered by some to be the best driving teacher in the continental United States, he has impacted more lives than the other two by quite some margin. The next generation of children are in good hands with the teacher of the trios as this man will live on forever thanks to his legacy. He is my mentor and there will be no haters when introducing the educator of excellence. And finally, He may be the best example of a man on a mission, because for 21 weeks, this man has helped lead the house show to the top of Podcast Row. His passion is unrivaled, and the amount of blood, sweat, and tears he puts into his work shows. He is the anchor that keeps the ship afloat. The president of the United States of House Shows, the almighty, sweet, Matty Treats. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.